0: everyone welcome back to the pod and the pendulum the horror movie podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise one movie in one episode at a time i'm your host mike snoonian joined once again by my co-host jerry smith jerry how are we doing man i'm in pain but i am excited oh you're poor <laughs> yeah. back what did you do oh,
1: dude i see well it really quickly uh, i got injured in 2005 because i used to be uh, a manager of mervins and one of the people that worked in my department uh, dropped a whole fixture on my back. So oh. I've had muscle spasms for 15 years now. And this week, I, I, I don't know what happened. But out of nowhere, it was like someone stabbed me and the pain has oh. not went away. And I, I don't touch painkillers because of past issues. I don't touch any of that stuff. So it, it's been wild. But I am so excited to talk about this movie. Heat uh, and ice.
0: Heat and ice. Oh, right. Yeah.
1: This movie means so much to me like uh, you know I I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and this film Freddy's Revenge the second one before I even watched the first film as a kid Mm -hmm. so I didn't have that oh they're breaking the rules kind of thing I didn't have that preciousness as a kid experiencing this film that to be honest this film to me personally is about being an outsider is about being someone who kind of is coming to terms with who they are and as a kid growing up in a very sheltered kind of uh, conservative Christian upbringing, you know, I wasn't allowed to be emotional. I wasn't allowed to talk about my feelings. I wasn't allowed to do this or that. And A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, while it means so much to so many different people, to me, this film is the most important film in the series, just to me as an
0: individual. Wait, we're doing Elm Street 2 today? Sorry, I'm joking. (laughs) You (laughs) asshole. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, terrible joke. No, this is also the first one I saw as well. And I told that to my daughter today and it blew her mind that you can watch movies out of order. Um, And I'm like, we didn't have Netflix and stuff back then, sweetheart. This was um, me hiding behind a sofa, watching it at far too young an age, at age 11, being absolutely terrified by everything going on on screen and not picking up on a lot of the subtextual cues of it at 11 years old, but being absolutely enthralled by it and falling in love with the series from there. And then going back to watch it years later and seeing all these things and like sensing this real sense of empathy for the character of um, Jesse in this movie and really loving it and really feeling like, to me, this is within top three of the whole series and depending on the day of the week for me it sometimes hits my top two like I absolutely absolutely love this movie Um, and I thought in order to you know what we love to do here is like we love to talk about the movies we love with other people as well so we have a pair of um guest with us today, and I'm really excited to bring both of them on. First, let's welcome from Daily Grindhouse and Grumpire, we have writer Jay Alari. Hello. How are you, Long man? time.
2: Great. Uh, it's hot here in Calgary, heat warning, but I am a long-time mm-hmm. listener from the beginning. Uh, you know, obviously a first-time guest, but I, I am super excited to be talking about, you know, Freddy's Revenge.
0: Absolutely, and I'm looking at the background right now, and I'm absolutely... Okay. <laughs> want to start going through your DVD and Blu-ray collection. All right. <laughs> um I'm like, oh that looks beautiful right now like I am absolutely just kind of want to start picking at it. So I'm sorry if I keep looking over No worries.
2: The, no worries.
0: Um, We're also joined by Sam Weinman, who is the director of short films like The Quiet Room, which you can actually find right now on Shudder, Santa Land and Thirsty. He's also the writer director of the upcoming documentary for Shudder that focuses on the history of queer horror. So let's welcome Sam Weinman to the show.
3: Hello thanks for having me
0: thank you so much man thank you so much for coming on so um jerry and i told a little bit of our history with the movie and like for me i always like to know first like what it is about this particular entry that like speaks to you or really stands out and you know why like we want to come and talk about it on a sunday afternoon so whoever would like to go first feel free to jump right in
3: Sure. I mean, I was born the year this came out. So uh, (laughs) it was something that I came to later. Right. Um, And as a as a queer, not yet out teen, I saw this and definitely identified with parts of it. And so you got to imagine it's like the early 2000s for me when I'm really I'm coming out and I'm being who I am. And then I'm also finding other people who share my love of horror movies. So we're watching this and it's like, oh, shit this is gay, <laughs> you know? And at a time when there wasn't a ton of gay content, mm-hmm. this film felt like uh, like a movie that was our secret, you know? And the more I dug into it and the more I like searched online, it was like, oh, the production designer might've been gay or, oh, this actor could have been out, but he's been gone all these years, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, it was like the mystery behind it, you know? And now I'd say it's the title that has permeated straight culture as far as queer horror goes. Right.
1: See, that's, that's interesting, and and I, I'm curious, did this film in any way play into wanting to do your, your uh, documentary that you're working on now?
3: You know, this film is definitely involved in it, but I think that on the queer side of things, it's kind of like The Babadook, where it's like, it mm-hmm. has this, it's like, this is queer horror, but actually queer horror is so much bigger than this, mm-hmm. so if anything, <laughs> it's like if I can snatch a straight audience who is down to talk a little bit about this and show them that actually horror has been queer from the very beginning, all the mm-hmm, way to the director mm-hmm. of Nosferatu, then yeah, let's do it. You know, if Nightmare on Elm Street 2 can be a vehicle as a way in for the way that it was for me, then yes. But I will say this, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is like, it's still Nightmare on Elm Street 2. So I've, I've seen it hundreds of times. I love it, but it's the conversation, you know, so it's like, that documentary exists, and it's really good. Have you guys seen Scream Queen, perchance? Yes. Yes, yes, yes I love it. Those guys are fantastic. And we interview them for our doc. Mm-hmm. So oh. we want to pick up, you know, we want to further that conversation rather than retread it.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And also, really quickly, uh, I didn't get a chance to say this at the beginning, but another reason, not just because it's this great perspective that I love reading online and, and everything else, another reason I wanted Sam on this show is because, like myself, he is a champion of the wonderful Tom Hooper film Cats. Oh yes, sir!
3: So. Yes, <laughs> yes, ineffable that movie.
0: Yes, so, so there you go, audience. <laughs> I have not taken the cats plunge, wow. and neither um, have
1: so, no, no. so good, so
0: good. Jay is the other non-cats person on this uh, <laughs> What was it about Elm Street 2? Because this is like when we were asking for guests. You're like, yep, that's the one that you would immediately had signed up for. So,
2: yeah. um, You know, because I think I'm around the same age as you, Mike. I'm like 46. So, Gen X. Uh, My family, because I grew up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And we did not have a VCR until like, I can remember the date, December 1986. So, we like our HBO equivalent, First Choice Super Channel. They had Mm -hmm. like a channel and they would like show the trailers to all the the movies that they're coming up and even before I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street I saw the trailer for Freddy's Revenge and it I was just 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 mesmerized hooked by it It just seemed like who is this guy with a hat and a claw gloved, glove claw hand you know he's bursting out from like the ground and he's attacking people and it and it, there's lots of fire and there's and then course like in the pre-internet days you know the school ground was where like most kids talked about like movies and you know making up stuff or real things but it was like sex comedies and horror and I remember you know kids were talking about the school bus scene in the beginning and I'm just like oh like you know the school bus goes into hell and I'm just like I'm like what like you know my mind was blown just right trying to imagine that and then and it's
0: a kid like trying to navigate oh yeah Honestly, like there was no more terrifying place in the world than the school bus because yeah. it was the Wild West. Like you have like a bus driver that could give no fucks whatsoever, yeah. and then you have like kids ages five to like twelve, depending on your school, and it was just the place to get bullied. I mean, like the school yeah. bus on its own already terrifying at that young age. So,
2: well, I was one of those kids that walked to school, but I would have to take the bus. If we had a field trip and I never liked, yeah, I never liked the school bus. And I was, I was bored a lot in elementary school. So I, that continued on a school bus for field trips. So I could definitely identify with Jesse and all the, you know, all that shit that was happening mm-hmm. to him in, on the bus.
0: Absolutely. So I know one of the things we normally do here is we go into the production history of the movie. And I think in like putting this together, I think the production history is going to be kind of woven into the way we talk about the film. So rather than kind of like get hung up and focused on that, like the three things I picked up about A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, if I were to think of like three things that it's most remembered for, it would be it's the movie that breaks the quote unquote rules of the series set by the first movie and subsequent ones, the tremendous practical effects set pieces that still hold up today in 2020. And obviously it's considered really one of the touchstones of queer horror cinema. So I think like that's the areas that unless anyone objects that we could focus on and then the production history kind of weaves itself into that. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I'll Absolutely. do
0: it. Perfect. So, if we could start like you know, this has always thrown me for a loop a little bit. Like, do we think that Freddy's Revenge breaks the rules of the Nightmare in Elm Street series? Because at the end of the first movie, Nancy's whole plan is to pull Freddy Krueger into the real world and then fight him here. And in th- in this movie, you see Freddy trying to pull himself into the real world while still kind of maintaining some of his dream powers. So, and to me, it's the second movie in the series. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean that like every rule's been established already. So that's been my kind of take on it overall. Well, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I, I never really cared about that because if you really think
1: about it, are there rules with one movie? You know what I mean? It's it's not like a George Lucas thing where like years later he goes back and be like, oh, I meant this the entire time. This is what, you know, from the beginning. Like there's a Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, there's this second film that I, I don't think there was that much of a world to make, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, like rules that to break, you know, that. And I really feel like if they like, if the rules were broken, uh, it kind of speaks on like how little a lot of the people involved in this movie cared about the first movie. Right you know what I mean? Like Jack shoulders is notorious for saying he didn't like the first movie. So, I mean, obviously he would like go his own way and do something completely different. I mean, there's so the way that the first film and the second film uh, differentiate from each other. Like it's, it's monumental. It's huge. You know, it's things like everything that Craven set forth, you know, shoulder kind of, or kind of throughout the window to do his own thing. I mean, even the whole uh, kind of subplot or I guess the actual plot of the rest of the film's, of freddy going after the children of the people that killed him i mean shoulder didn't care shoulder and chaskin didn't care about that whatsoever i mean that's disregarded you know like i I don't think it was breaking the rules per se i think it was just like not caring in some ways
2: yeah i i i I totally oh sorry i just i totally agree though because i think you know a lot of times with horror sequels they're just blatant cash-ins and you know know obviously New Line, they had a they had a modest hit with Nightmare on Elm Street, so they wanted to like you know cash in. But I really applaud the fact that yeah, like what you said, like you know, just having like you can have a set of rules established in the first film, but why not you know you could just do a retread or you can just go go further. I mean yeah, you know, Schuller didn't like the film, but you know so I'm going to try this the whole possession angle and and he's not gonna operate in people's dreams necessarily outside of Jesse. So I, 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 I like the fact that it kind of like, it, you know, you could argue, yes, it doesn't follow the rules, but so what? Like, I think that's, I think if you're gonna make a sequel, why not do something different? And, you know, adhere somewhat to the original, but also try to expand upon it.
3: When you look at Friday the 13th, um, <laughs> a series about Jason, right? Yeah. But nobody's <laughs> like, part two didn't come out and people were like, Uh, Jason can't be the killer. It has to be the mom, (laughs) you know, I mean, horror fans are so forgiving of every series changing the rules in the second one. Um, and for some reason, this is a sticking point. I think it's because we just compare, um, Nightmare 2 to all the other nightmares that Mm -hmm. were successful and maybe landed a little better. We love a sinister Freddy who like gives his crazy one-liners. Well, that shit wasn't even really happening in the first one. Also Freddy's revenge on the nightmare on the kids of Elm Street that's kind of established later in the series. Yes, she lives on Elm Street, but it's not explicit, other than that she is one of those children, that's not something that even came into play until later. Mm So we shouldn't judge this second film by the standards of the things that were successful later, in my opinion.
1: right? Oh no, totally. Totally And and I also feel like, I mean, and maybe this will be a little controversial, so I apologize, (laughs) but I've always just, as a fan of just the concept of Freddy and what he represents, I've always kind of gotten excited of the idea of maybe having the nightmares be different for different people. You know, like the idea of having Freddie be like the set character who looks a certain way, you know, does things a certain way. Like as much as I love the films, like I feel like maybe they would have hit even more with me had Freddie looked extremely different in every film and kind of represented himself very differently than like the previous one. And I feel like Freddy's Revenge does that. It takes the Freddy from the first film and makes him look more like a witch in this film. Makes him even oh man, the cruelty coming out of Freddie in this movie is astronomical. I mean like it's 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 what made the first film work amplified but in different ways. I mean we get the possession stuff. We get this we get a final boy, which you don't get to see very often. You know, like as as a young kid, I mean, I've written about this so many times and I've talked about this on the show so many times, so I apologize for being like a broken record, but as a childhood victim or survivor, rather, of sexual abuse, you know, I lived vicariously through the Lori Strokes, the Sally Hardesties, you know, all of that. Seeing Jesse in this film as a kid was so huge for me, finding solace in, in a character that kind of looked like me, you know, that I, I identified in a lot of ways. Because, I mean, like so many other people my age or other ages, I had my own Freddie. you know? I had my own Freddie that was trying to, you know, take my childhood away. So I, I love the fact that this movie is so different from the first film. And I kind of wish that every other film in the series had also done their own thing as much as this film did.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not afraid to be its own thing. It's definitely the, it, it. Instead of being a movie about nightmares, becomes more of a possession movie. Um, it becomes a movie where Freddy, in a Nightmare in Elm Street, Freddy is trying to kill Nancy and he's just unsuccessful time and time again because Nancy is awesome. In this movie, like Freddy is never trying to kill Jesse. He's trying to manipulate him and to do his own bidding. And you see that in these really, to this day, sequences that still hold up, I think, in a wonderful way. Like when Jesse is looming over his sister oh, yeah. and he sees the glove is on his hand and he's just unaware unaware of his actions up until that point. And I think it speaks to this really deep-seated psych par- psyche part of this. It's just like sometimes we don't know how monstrous our own actions are are in the middle of what we're doing. Like we think we're the good guy and we don't even realize how we're unwittingly hurting people around us. And Freddie is very much able to kind of manipulate Jesse throughout this movie. And it's, to me, that is every bit as scary if not even more so at times than just someone that pops up in a bad dream. So, and you do get the traditional nightmare sequences. Like you get the opening scene on the bus you get like Jesse waking up and finding like these objects in his rooms have like melted. Um, but, you know, it is, it's crazy. You know, some of the stuff you see, like some of the, and we'll talk about the effects in a little bit, but um, the, as far as like one of the major themes, like this movie is so much about repressing who you are and how would you repress your true self and your, own identity and don't live your own truth that this person that emerges in its place is, can be really monstrous because it's not authentic and it's a constant struggle to try to be who you really want to be. And we're going to talk about that, I think, in a lot more depth in a little bit. I just want to harp on that now. And you see this movie like Jesse really trying to like fight with these heteronormative standards that have been like expected of him and even if he can't quite f- put a finger on why that doesn't sit with him um he knows that something is off and that's never touched on in any of the other elm street movies and that's no nope.
1: i'm done no, no i was just gonna let someone else go if they want to uh no i, I agree agree 100 percent, and i think uh one thing that always bothers me when I read articles or you know hear people talk is when they, especially like uh, the way the media presents horror. It's like a, a film that has really deep and rich subtext will come out and it'll be like a horror film that means something, and which that is so insulting to me because I feel like most horror films have something to say, mm-hmm. but you rarely get films to be honest, like like Freddy's Revenge. Uh, I I think it got kind of gets thrown in with the rest of the series a lot. And I mean, that's, I love those movies are great, Mm -hmm. but I think there's so much going on in this film. I mean, not just like the, the queer subtext, but I I think in general, I mean, I think it could relate to, to anyone really. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, I I, I lived such a weird childhood of, of, you know, going to church three times a week. You know, I couldn't watch certain movies without sneaking them, you know, in my room. I couldn't listen to albums or else my pastor would tell my dad to burn them. Uh, I mean, there was one point where my dad's pastor told him to give me money for every, like, Marilyn Manson album I had, you know, pay me to get rid of them. And then I would just use the money to buy extra copies. Uh, You know, like, like this repression, I mean, it's such a huge part, I think, of, of of the childhood of of so many of us, you know, like, what, whatever situation you're in, whatever upbringing or, or living conditions you're in, you know, it's, it's hard being a kid. It's hard growing up. It's hard being a teenager. I mean, growing pains are so difficult. You know, like, I don't think I actually felt comfortable in my own skin until like my mid 20s. You know, like, right. like, it, like this film, I think really shines a light on how difficult
3: just growing up can be.
0: And Sam, I saw that you wanted to jump in. I think you had just oh. muted
3: yourself, so. Yes, sorry. Um, I was gonna say, well, to speak to that, Jerry, horror is an outsider genre. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I feel like that's what connects queer horror with horror. So be, growing up queer, it's like I'm looking for myself in these films because uh, representation doesn't exist for me, right? Mm-hmm. But what you said earlier about identifying with final girls and their strength or uh, you know, that just that you identify with the Laurie Strode's, that's the same thing for me, right? So we have this thing in common. Uh, our, our motivations might be different, but we're both doing what queer folks have to do with films, which is a queer, we're doing a queer reading of it as in queer being there's something other happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what's interesting about Nightmare on Elm Street for me because you can do a queer reading of it and whether or not it's intentional, there's, there is material there that is ripe for the taking and talking about and seeing ourselves in, right? Whether, and, and to me, it doesn't even matter if it's explicit or intentional. The fun part, right, are the parts that were intentional because <laughs> then it's a little <laughs> bit validating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's a blast. I will add one thing, though. I personally, while I do see the thing about um, identifying with a character who struggles with who he is and and being open with it, the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and this is my own controversial take, mm-hmm. but I think it's homophobic. And so okay. I i don't I don't love the ending of this movie. <laughs> oh,
1: <and laughs> no, I honestly- And I know I, Jerry I agreed. Really un- okay. I, I put it in my notes, I, I am 100% in agreement with you. In fact, I, I think- to be honest, you know, I'm sorry, David Chaskin, but I, I don't feel like he wrote this film from a, an, an ally perspective. Right. I, I feel like a lot of the execution by a lot of people works and I feel like the character of Jesse is a great one, but I almost feel like it's, I feel like it's dangerously close to being exploitative of, of it. And and that ending definitely has always given me that
0: too. It can definitely be a reading into like, here are the benefits of conversion therapy. You know, I mean, I, and I think I put this in my notes because I saw that you had written that, Jerry. And I think I had even noted, and I think when we get to that part, we'll talk a lot more. It's a little teaser for later on. I have a different take on it. And I will fully admit that like, the take I have on it is probably pie in the sky head in the clouds like being an optimistic and you know being an optimist like well maybe they intended this with it you know and someone can definitely tell me like i hear that's your take but you can go shit in your hat and i will be like yeah you're probably right you know
3: well why i wanted to bring it up at all is i still love the movie and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i think it has a homophobic ending I still love the movie. And for me, and I think a lot of queer viewers, we can love something that's problematic. We can pick the pieces that we identify with. And that's enough because we haven't had a lot Mm -hmm. to pick from. So I'm only, I'm planting that seed now since we're celebrating a lot of the positivity. Yeah.
0: And let's definitely keep planning. Yeah. That's definitely. I love this
3: shit. (laughs) But it's, it's a problem. Yeah.
0: I think you just froze on us there too for a sec, Sam. So I'm sorry if I talked over you there a little bit. Oh, um, no worries. Sorry about that. Um, so, we talked a little bit about the look of Freddy, but I want to ask, like, is this the scariest Freddy Krueger of the whole series? Oh, hell
1: yes. <laughs> like, yeah, for just me personally, even more than the first film, this Freddy just scares the living hell out of me still. Like, I'm, I'm turning 40 in a couple months, and I still get scared every time I see this Freddy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just... <laughs> it's, he's just dark and not brooding but just sinister this is the Freddy that gets off on what he does Mm -hmm. it's like we love the one-liner films you know they're fun i mean welcome to primetime bitch will always be a classic Mm -hmm. but this is the Freddy that doesn't care enough to do one-liners he wants to kill you he wants to destroy you he wants to take you over and he gets off on it i mean the you've got the body, I've got the brain mm-hmm. sequence yeah. still scares the living hell out of me. I mean, the way he rips the skin away from his head. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the pool scene, especially. I mean, oh. the help yourself, fucker. Like, that is Freddy at his most maniacal. It's terrifying.
2: I'm just surprised he let that guy go on. It's like, hey, it's okay, dude. Like, mm-hmm. well, just tell us. I'm surprised he let him go on that long before he uh, <laughs> had his uh, phrase. But no, you're totally right because like even from that trailer that I watched, I, I was like this, this, this character is scary. And then what people were, kids were telling me on the school ground, like oh my god. And then because I did did not see part two until after I saw the first one. But I, and just to to parallel with you, Jerry, like my mom was super Christian. She was at the time not di- she was undiagnosed schizophrenic. And I was like horror films. I, she didn't even like me watching Star Trek; it was verboten. So like sleepovers were my escape route for for horror. And I got to see the Nightmare on Elm Street at a friend's house. And I I I found Freddy to be a real, you know, or he's really Fred Krueger, isn't he? Like in the first two movies, he's Fred Krueger, and that just mm-hmm. to me is it's not as you know. I'm not saying Freddy. Freddy sounds like a fun person, but like you know, he's he's a child molester. I mean, and and and. This character is so scary in parts one, and then when I saw part two, like he's—I think he's not really in it as maybe a little bit more in part two than part one, but it's still mm-hmm. like he's still kept in the shadows. That scene, the close-up, he's like, "You've got the body, I've got the brains." Like you see just that close-up of his eyes, and you can just see enough of like the pustules and his his burned skin, and he, yeah, he's really scary. And like when I watched again recently this week, I was just like, like I just got shivers because I'm like this is not the like you know part three that's where the start of the quipster and everything and you know the lighting he's not he's he's there all the time the lighting you can see like the the more the deep the color of his his stupid sweater but i mean like like the first two like he he's yeah he's sinister he's he's bad
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I might be partial to new nightmare just because it was the first one i saw like uj at a sleepover (laughs) uh Uh, and i I just, I thought uh, that Freddy to me was so terrifying because they had removed his personality and, and they had it uh, uh, contrasted to the TV Freddy or the Freddy that we'd all grown accustomed to, yeah. um, mm-hmm. that it was chilling to me. But that could just be nostalgia.
1: Yeah, and he had leather pants in that one.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You know, I, I don't watch show. that one was Daddy
1: Freddy so
0: for know. sure. Oh, I love that Freddy. I love that Freddy. Oh, man. We're going to get to be Nightmare <laughs> in a few weeks and... People are going to cancel our show because of Mary. Oh, I'm on
1: I'm, I'm for <laughs> yeah. I love that movie.
0: Um, so I do think this is the most terrifying Freddy because I think in the first movie... Uh, Like our uh, guest Tommy Hudson pointed out, he's only in it for like eight minutes and change in that movie, but he's this overwhelming presence that is throughout the movie. You feel the presence of Kruger and how he permeates everything he does here. He's much more of a visceral presence overall. And Jerry, I know you put in your notes, like, England is at his peak in this movie. Like, he is totally disappears into the character of Freddy. This is the Krueger voice I like. It has that deeper modulation to it overall. It's got that gravitas, it's all this gravelly yeah. feel to it. Um a growl. Yes. Like, this wow. is a, you know, the Freddy of. The first movie and the latter movies is very much like a cat kind of toying with a mouse a little bit. He's getting off on it. There's a there's a a sadistic part of him overall that just likes inflicting this pain on him because he gets off. This is Freddy just like not giving any fucks whatsoever. Yeah. He just wants to cause damage and and there's that part when he first lays eyes on Grady and sees that Grady's absolutely terrified. He has this little nod, this little, like, it's it's on at this point. Jay, you had spoken about how, like, I can't believe he let the character even give that little speech, like, it's going to be okay, we're here to help you. Like, Freddie at that point had, for the first time in the series, really shown some emotional vulnerability. And I think that's what makes the pool party scene so chilling, is because yeah. he had just admitted to loving another person and not on his own volition and how like disgusted that made him feel of himself and how unsure that made him feel of itself what you see in that sequence is like if you corner a feral dog that dog will lash out at you yeah that's why i think the pool sequence like still stands out it's so good i also oh, think
1: no. that the 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 scene where the guy's kind of trying to reason with freddy i i the read that i get from that that the reason that freddy lets him do that is an is just to showcase how fucking evil and how much power he mm-hmm. has he's That's gonna evil. give this person he's gonna give this person the false <laughs> the false uh, you know like safety of thinking he's about to reason with this Ooh. person knowing that he's gonna slash the fuck at him in half a second you know like like i said he's he's getting off on the, on on like killing these people he's getting off on power over these people you know and and i've always had that read of it like he knows that he's gonna do it you know he's doing it he's letting this guy say this stuff because it's gonna be that much more of a personal payoff to kill him after he begged basically for him not to
0: mm-hmm. God, Freddy's phrase an asshole Freddie's definitely <laughs> yo definitely well, no, an yeah, like,
2: I mean, all you have to do is contrast Fred, Freddie in part two here and then in Fred, to, to the character in <laughs> Freddie's dad where, you know, I'm playing with power, now I'm playing with power, or whatever stupid shit he says. But I mean, like, just like he's, you can't, he's not scary in that movie, but mm-hmm. here he's just like this visceral presence. I mean, this is one of the few times I think he makes his presence known to a large group of people, not just, right. you know, some of the kids of Elm Street. And like, yeah, he's almost like ele- elemental mm-hmm. and scary.
1: No, totally. Uh, I also think, I mean, maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but I think when talking about Freddy's Revenge, I I think Mark Patton's performance gets kind of thrown under the bus at Mm -hmm. times. And I mean, I've always thought this, but I mean, I especially felt this when rewatching the film this morning. I love Mark Patton's performance in this film. Especially the scene right around the pool, the the pool area. When he He, runs in, what's that? Go ahead. Nope, don't finish that thought, my dad. When Mark Patton comes in after the whole Grady death, his performance when he's, telling, uh, when he's telling her about what happened and he's blaming himself and all this stuff, people see that as overacting. People see that, see that as bad acting. I see that as authenticity. You know, when I'm losing my shit and I'm going through like this mental health breaks because it's quite regularly for me, I'm not super composed. You know, my voice is cracking. I'm all over the place. I'm hiding under a fucking table at times. You know what I mean? And I think the way Mark Patton played Jesse, it's so authentic to what it feels like to feel like you're losing your mind, not knowing what you're doing. There's vulnerability in his performance. And I I think that, honestly, I think it's one of the best performances in the entire series.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to talk more about Mark uh Mark Patton's performance when we get to that in a little bit so I'll put a little bit of a pin on it not to like cut it off completely I saw Sam you wanted to jump in and I know like it might be a little bit of a delay but uh I want to make sure you got got a chance to
3: oh I'll jump in with that no it was uh, I mean when we're talking about Mark Patton uh, I'm there for it
0: okay um and to me like the the like this movie still has two even though it's People think of the first movie, the third movie, and surprisingly, like, Dream... I am stunned by how many people want to come on our Dream Master show. Like, it's like everybody is like, yeah, we get, we're we doing two episodes on it because we have so many people that Hold are on. like, so come Hell on yeah. it, you know?
3: Um, <laughs> Dude, Lisa so, Wilcox is fucking awesome. She, Oh, my God. I
0: am in love with her. Um, <laughs> She's so good. Alice does not... Well, you know this will not be like an uh, part four episode, but little spoiler like in the pantheon of um, horror movie Final Girls, like Alice does not get enough love and admiration like, yes, I love Halloween 4, yeah. but like, look, if you want to stay in a part four Final Girl, go to Alice, not
3: yeah. a fucking no. man.
0: All right. Super so, agreed. Jerry got very quiet. Jerry's said, like, fuck off. <laughs> <all right." laughs> i'm pulling out of that. <laughs> <laughs> um but to me like this is the movie like freddie even though they're not and they're not comedic one-liners like the you've yeah. got the body i've got the brains like that's not played for comedy that's played to give you nightmares for weeks mm-hmm. um and this it's like, also
1: played for will smith to use it in a song which what the hell you guys a remember song that? rules oh, what it's so cute. i know no, it's no song. idea well, 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 obviously. Nightmare, no. on, Nightmare on My Street by yeah. Fresh Prince. Uh, got it. it's it's So good.
0: Um, um, just that and one. And then, <laughs> um, it's a Canada thing. Um, and you got you got uh, Robin uh, you got Robin Sparkles and Bear Naked. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, oh. You know, and the other thing is like when Freddie sees all of these kids, and you see like him doing the math in his head like look at all these new children i get to mess with after this and that line like you're and and look like i've got opinions on jack's shoulder we're gonna get to them like i don't think he's a very good person but i think he (laughs) shot the fuck out of this movie like that's with just like the fire behind freddie and him spreading his arms out and the way it's shot it's like he's embracing you as an audience member um utterly terrifying so i think this is like really kruger at his peak in terms of being terrifying like if freddy was like this throughout the series we would not get freddy Krueger on lunchboxes.
1: Yeah, yeah i mean great I, I had pajamas and a pull string doll as a kid <laughs>
3: oh, what i would give for freddy pajamas now yeah. but-
0: they have to be out there
3: Yeah, at this point, huh?
0: They have to be. Like, at what age, like, do we outgrow being able to wear adult character pajamas? Like, is there, like, do we? No,
3: No. and definitely not in quarantine.
0: Okay. I mean, is anybody even wearing real clothes? (laughs) (laughs) Or any? (laughs) Exclusively pajamas. Yeah. Yeah. I would say this pre-call, like I go back to not teach, but I'm a counselor in a school. The kids are gonna be remote through Thanksgiving. Thankfully, it's the right decision. We may have to come in and I'll have to like counsel kids remotely. I've already told people like, I'm not wearing pants. Like I haven't worn (laughs) pants. March 13th is the last day that long pants touch this wonderful body, and I'm sorry, like, it's cargo shorts and, like, I don't know, nut huggers, you know, until until the turkey is cut and the kids come back in, as far as I'm concerned. Side note, all right, everyone's horrified, (laughs) so... (laughs) Oh,
2: right. No, I'm, that's November. Sorry, because I'm getting my Thanksgiving. I'm, I went to the, because we have Thanksgiving in October. So I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, it's back. But I forgot you guys, it's November. So right, right. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to go back to at least November. So that's Yeah,
0: cool. we're thankful for that, especially in the yeah. city that we're in. It's a little bit higher rate than some others. So yeah. all right, folks, the special effects of this. <laughs> um, I think that this is, obviously it takes cues from American Werewolf in London. Um, and there are some things that don't quite work, <clears throat> Parakeet. Um, but I Pogs. think this is like one of the FX showcases of the 1980s. And I don't think it's, it gets talked enough when it comes to like body horror and transformation sequences. Like this stuff still works in 2020. No,
1: especially the transformation scene. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, like like I said, I, I revisited it this morning again. And like that sequence in Grady's room, like oh, like I got watched yeah. it with my kids. I watched it with my kids and they were like, what is going on? <laughs> mm-hmm. You see that eyeball through his mouth? You know, like it's so good. Like I know that Mark Shostrum handled a lot of the transformation. So I'm curious to talk to him maybe pretty soon about it too. But there's so much on display in this film. I think the other film in the series that really does it for me as far as the effects is uh, the Dream Master. Because you have that really cool ending with all the people, all the souls trying to, you know, mm-hmm. come out of Freddy. But this yes. film, yeah. like that transformation scene in particular, that or the head with the brain stuff. Yes. Like they're yeah. kind of firing in all cylinders in this yeah. film.
2: Well, that it's 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 practical effects at its finest when you know people talk about oh those old movies you know I think like eighties is old like Ugh. but when they mm-hmm. you know kids you know the Gen Gen Z they're talking about like oh you know like those CGI I'm like well no 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 this is like when practical effects like when you can see things glistening and it's it looks real it's physical and it's you know. Oh, it's like yeah, those transformation scenes like they they still hold up so incredibly well. It it just it's terrifying. Like it's just here, like you really do believe like Freddy's coming through. Like he's tearing away at Jesse's
1: human shell to be. You know, it's just it's gross, but it's it's scary. It's great that and this film and films like Society, like a yeah. lot of these yes. '80s films kept KY in business.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 like you could just fill it in this movie. But friends,
3: <laughs> how quickly you forget like the dogs wearing plastic masks. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, no, like the nice. wide right. shots that don't match yeah. like the oh, factory. Right. I mean, the, yeah. the living room that's lit like all one t- Like It feels like I'm on the set of a TV show. Look, yeah. I love this film and when it succeeds, mm-hmm. it really succeeds. Mm-hmm. And, and sure, Freddie is dark as fuck and it's scary, but there are these moments that are so bad that they're camp. Right. And again, I think that's part of what makes it so glorious. It's loving mm-hmm. all of it. Not just like Yes, it does succeed, but it's also very flawed. Mm-hmm. You know, just like me. So I love yeah. that. <laughs> no, and it's, so it's so who doesn't, doesn't want the
1: Fu Manchu yeah. cereal? And I oh, forget.
3: God. I I forget <laughs> who it
0: was that did the dog effects, but I remember in. I think it was the uh, Never Sleep Alone documentary. He's like, well, you know, I was working on aliens at the time too with James Cameron. And that was (laughs) was kind of, yeah, he was like, that was kind of, so he's like, I just put some masks on these dogs. And, you know, (laughs) the the parakeet scene is like, to me, like, it's hard not to laugh. Oh, yeah beautiful it's just like like you said it's so bad it's good in that moment um there's
1: you know i I think sam's completely right i mean there there's so much that we could talk about that we feel works for the film but the things that kind of don't like really shows how much fun the movie can be i feel like it's a terrifying film but i mean if there's if i find a single person that that doesn't smile during jesse's dance sequence Mm -hmm. they're liars (laughs) Yeah, that I'm is one of the, like i love that scene so much oh,
2: people are always talking about chris Glover's dance in friday four and i'm like yeah that's but you know here's some competition
3: yeah and Can you that dance as off great as the kill oh, that'd be yes, glorious
0: if you join our patreon we'll
3: find a way to make that happen <laughs> you know there are great kills in this like we were talking about the the, the pool sequence but like is anybody afraid when balls start flying off the wall at the coach come Mm -hmm. on (laughs) this is like yeah he's playing dodgeball after hours at the high school i guess you
0: know don't we all don't we all do that don't we all have that gym teacher that hangs out in the leather bars and yeah we'll definitely get to that (laughs) moment oh yeah we'll get this is this is like one big like edging and denial session, like tease and denial section to to get to like where we're gonna be going with this. But I think that um feels like I dropped out of the audio here for a second. I think that we're at a point now with movies that we're almost demanding perfection of things like And, like, anything that is less than perfect now, like, oh, just pull me out of it because, like, it wasn't 100% real. And I don't know, like, I don't want to live in a world where, like, everything has to make 100%. Like, sometimes it's okay to say because it's a horror movie, you know, because, like, logic can fly out the window. Um, And, Jay, to your point, there's something about the tactical feel of it and the fact that it's a tangible item like the jesse's arm splintering into pieces and freddie's arm emerging from it was something that someone had to create that you could go and touch and put your hands on and feel and smell um freddie's head emerged similar to the first movie except instead of popping out of a wall is now popping out of somebody's chest And then having the blade slice vertically across so he can come out in this really perverted fucking thing of birth at that point and him emerging from it. Like that's something that someone had to physically make and figure out Mm -hmm. how to do. I said this with uh, Jay Blake, our guest last week, we were talking about... The special effects tapes that he, he and i used to watch and how it got us more into horror movies how that's a lost art now because it's not interesting to like do a behind the scenes thing with like here's a team of four guys behind a computer A computer
2: yeah work, you know no and, and that's i think that's true because like i have to think too like with with physical effects like that has to only help the actors performances because you know nowadays they you know like the marvel movies and whatever it's all blue green screens it's mm-hmm. like okay pretend okay that's Stick over there—that's Thanos or whatever, yeah. or some giant ship—and like act surprised, but like so you can't—you don't really see any, anything. So, mm-hmm. but when you know, but you have practical effect on set. I mean, that, that's got to help. Right? It's like because the actor can see it. It's like okay, I, I have to react to that, mm-hmm. and it's working. And even though you can probably see technicians in the background, it's like you're—you know—you're buying into that. You're in the moment. So to me, like that can only help the film.
0: Absolutely.
1: That and those were heroes to me growing up, just as much as like you know any A-list actors were. You know, growing up, you know, Greg Nicotero or the whole KMB crew. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Mark Showstrom, uh, Steve Johnson. Like these were the people that I wanted to be like growing up. You know, I didn't give a fuck about Tom Cruise. You right. know, but but Greg Nicotero, like that guy was like an idol. Yeah. You know, and like nowadays, it's almost like that craft. Is, is kind of a lost thing. I mean, we talked about this during the episode of the first Elm Street film. You know, you get that spandex wall in the original and it looks marvelous to this day. And you get that recreation of that in the remake and it's one of the hokiest fucking shots ever. You know, mm-hmm. like there's, there's something so magical about that. And I feel like this film, you know, warts and all really shows and the whole series for that, for that matter. Like the whole series shows that practical effects i mean they they're wonderful and i, I love that this is series this series and the Friday fifteenth series especially they embraced that so much and it worked so well for for the
0: films one hundred percent agree yeah. yes we um I'm going to backtrack for like one second here. The one that we talked about, whether it's just the scariest Freddy, this is interesting because it's the movie that tried to replace Robert England. And you see the one shot and it's so obvious now when it's pointed out the shower sequence where you have like a, you know, let's just put a stunt man in a mask in the sweater and you see him walk and it looks like just like lurch from the Adams family, <laughs> you know, it um, looks
1: like how I'm walking this week with my right back.
0: So the, <laughs> none of that physicality, like that kind of performance that England brought to, to the role is where they realized, thankfully, really quick, like uh, this isn't going to work, and you can get. And look, there are some Michael Myers that are better than others. There are some Jason Voorhees that are better than others. I will agree with that. But, you know, they're pretty much almost interchangeable roles. And I don't mean that as any disrespect to anyone who's ever played that role. I don't want the ghost of Richard Brooker coming after me. <laughs> because, God, he brings, like, suburban dad energy to the part of Friday the 13th Part 3, which I fucking love. It'll oh, yeah, he's Part 3, right? For. Okay, yeah. yeah, so
2: definitely. He uh, is. No.
0: Like, if you go back into the archives, suburban dad that's been told to take out the trash and rake the leaves and all they want to do is watch football that weekend. Like, come on. Gotta kill these fucking kids. Um, but, like, there's nobody except for maybe Boris Karloff and Frankenstein's monster that I would identify in the role of the monster they played more than Robert Englund and Freddy Krueger he approaches
1: the role and i think we talked about this for the first episode he approaches the role in a way so it is so different than anyone else mm. you know there's and this is this is with jack shoulder and bob chase uh you know fuck up at the beginning of this film thinking that they could replace robert england and not pay him that extra you know extra money to have him come back they thought that he was interchangeable they thought it was just kind of a stuntman in a mask role they didn't realize that that those eight minutes that robert england was in a nightmare on Elm street,
0: make the he movie.
1: left a mark on history of in horror just in those eight minutes, and he has taken that role over the years and made it his own 100%. That is a Robert England character, and you know, and anytime they've tried to stray, I mean, you know, no offense to Jackie Earl Haley, I love him in so many movies. I mean, Little Children is one of my mm-hmm. favorite films of all time. Uh, I mean, Bad News Bears, but uh, you know, like. That's, I think that's a big reason why the, the remake of Elm Street didn't mm-hmm. work. It wasn't just that Rooney Mara looked like she was bored and wanted to sleep the whole movie, you know. <laughs> it it wasn't the the weird tone for me. It was the fact that it just didn't feel like Freddy right. to me, you know, at all. And I think that that's what makes Robert England so good as an actor is that any role, even if it's a film that's kind of, I'd hate to say lesser than him, because I mean it takes a lot to get any film made. So I'm not going to shit on them
3: ready uh, is a film that. oh Ooh. no go, no, go ahead think, go ahead. No, no i think i had a delay my bad guys
1: no no i i was just finishing up saying that like uh, robert england took this character that could have been somewhat one-dimensional and made it a fully fleshed character
0: absolutely
3: he made him a drag queen this is the thing
1: <laughs> oh, i, I mean, want to
3: hear this oh do wow. yeah. watch, Sounds so fascinating. do you watch rupaul's drag race anybody here i mean because i'm like that's sometimes the straight in
1: I I've I've seen the first two seasons.
3: So this is going to fall. Uh, Let me just explain. But in queer culture, right, we have a long history of drag performers, people who create characters and also impersonate people on stage. It's not just an impersonation. So if you're a drag queen, you're going on stage and you your character is doing that impersonation. It's your character doing Cher or it's your character lip syncing the song. So who you are is your character that you don every time your makeup is on. You're doing, it's in your movement, it's in your speaking. That's Robert England doing Freddy. So a straight crossover of drag would be Elvira, right? So Elvira um, created her character in, a, in um, amongst drag queens. She used to work at a drag bar and she performed as Elvira in the early years. So when like the late night talk show host thing came or late night show came about, uh, she already had what she needed to put together that character. Elvira is drag. So when we imagine, like imagine replacing Elvira with somebody new. It's, you can't separate the person from the character because she has a drag character that will always be her. Yes, you can have Elvira, but you won't have Elvira. Right. Just like we won't have Freddie
0: without uh, Robert Englund. It's almost like, it it pains me that the last movie we're going to talk about in this series is the remake. It's my least favorite for a lot of reasons. And I'm going to try to find some channel some positive things about it but it's gonna be it's gonna be really hard i'm not gonna be honest like the movie it gets me book of shadows level of angry um gets me mandy level of angry if it's- oh. <laughs> um so it um I think that, and I, I, want a world where there are more Nightmare and Elm Streets, and I think there needs to be some sort of torch passing where you can do more Nightmare and Elm Street movies, but like the central villain is no longer Freddy Krueger. I think well, that's you can the, do that because I think England is so tied into that role, uh, which to, to all to his credit.
1: Well, I think that's what I, I mean. That's what I meant earlier when I said that. Like, I've always thought I've mm-hmm. been kind of enthralled by the idea of nightmares being different for different people. You know, if 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 Robert England's, you know, a, a little too old in his opinion to bring the character back, as far as his interpretation, I think there should be a torch passing, but it doesn't have to be Freddy per se. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be somebody kind of like ape in his performance. I feel like nightmares can mean. I mean, my nightmares are completely different than, you know, my mm-hmm. wife's nightmares or my, right. tra- my children's nightmares. And I, I feel like nobody else can do Freddy like Robert Englund can. So right. why bother,
0: you know? Right. Why well, have a pale limitation of exactly. thing at that point? Um, all right. So now we're going to dive into what I think, like when, when, we, when this movie is discussed, when it's talked about, it's earned a reputation over the years as quote unquote like the gayest horror movie of all time overall. Um, and I'm not sure if that's hundred percent true, but it's definitely up there. And I think Sam, we were talking off air, you know how like it, it's the gateway. It's like for a lot of people that aren't familiar with queer horror, it's the first movie that they kind of look at and then it becomes like a diving off point overall. You had written, and I forget if it was a Twitter thread or a blog post because the, I don't think people even blog anymore. It's just really- yeah, probably Twitter threads. <laughs> um, how you're in, how like horror has always been queer from the earliest days. Like one of the greatest early horror movies of all time, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein were helmed by James Whale, like a gay director in Hollywood. And I don't know how you don't watch Bride of Frankenstein as a modern audience and not see- the queer themes that are run throughout it. Like, you can't miss them. Like, they're like, it's like, before we recorded this, I went to my wife and I'm like, man, my, I'm really stinky today here and chased her around with like some really bad body funk. And she ran <laughs> around to this point. Like, you can't miss it. Like, they were everywhere. I think my rabbit just knocked something over. Um, but like, the, it's, they're right there. So like, to your point, like, horror's always been, like you said, an outsider's medium and a queer medium.
3: Yeah, well, and you know, it's interesting because I, I spoke about that because there's been a lot of conversation about queer people and queer representation in horror and, and, what, and what we do with our problematic faves. Like, how do we embrace something mm-hmm. that, uh, that isn't perfect, you know? Um, but what's interesting about horror as a genre is that its greatest entries were helmed by queer people. You know, I mean, it's it's it like like you said, Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah, Nosferatu with F.W. Murnau. It's uh, Scream, and I know we did last summer, and all you know, ev- all the works of Kevin Williamson. It's mm-hmm. Hellraiser. It, it just doesn't stop. It's all of the. It's you know, uh, Don Mancini with the Chucky's. It's mm-hmm. Brian Fuller with Hannibal. We have such great living queer creators who uh, who are responsible for this. So yeah, if there's some hidden messages in there that y'all missed. Sure, I believe it, you know. <laughs> but also there's some stuff that uh, that's pretty straightforward that, mm-hmm. that like you're saying about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you can't miss it.
0: It's it's just it's right there in the face overall. Um I wanted and when I was like putting my notes together, I started to think back about when this movie was released and what it would have you know, because you, like you had said, like there at the end of this movie, there is that reading of it that can come off as homophobic, and like I don't think if you if you were to remake this movie today, or if it was just put, it would not have that same ending. Like it would it would definitely to I would feel like it would go in a much different direction. And you know, um, Sam, you mentioned like you were born in eighty five when this came out, so I was ten years old back then, and I remember this is right in the middle of the AIDS pandemic, and this is right. Yeah. A year after Ronald Reagan is reelected in a landslide victory where he takes 49 of 50 states, which was, un- it would not happen 49? Way. Yes. Well, wow, sorry, um, I, just, I didn't know, I mean, didn't it know was that
2: specific amount. <laughs>
0: the biggest blowout in electoral history, basically. And he ran on a platform of conservative values, heteronormative values, patriarchal values that condemn homosexuality. And in 1985, AIDS is seen by the public is a disease that affects gay men and intravenous drug users. And that's it. And you know what, if that happens to that subset of people, then tough, that's punishment. And this isn't me speaking. This is the attitudes of the time. Punishment for living a quote unquote deviant lifestyle. Ronald Reagan and his administration saw no need to devote any time, any energy, any financial or manpower resources to a disease that by 2001 had killed over 450,000 Americans alone, not even looking through the world. And as late as 1973, homosexuality is listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, i.e. the book that I use when I work with clients in order to work with them. And even after the American Psychiatric Association votes to remove that, it's replaced by something called sexual orientation disturbance for persons that are in quote-unquote conflict with their sexual orientation. It's not until 1987 two years after this movie comes out that that is removed from the DSM. The World Health Organization doesn't remove homosexuality from its platform until 1992. On October 2nd, 1985, Hollywood legend, heartthrob, Rock Hudson dies from complication of AIDS. So exactly one month before this movie comes out. Hudson had announced in July of that year that he had the disease. Previously had been reported that he had liver cancer. Amongst Hollywood friends, Hudson's orientation was known and he was out and accepted, but the public at large had no idea and really no idea how to even accept that news. And I got a link here in my notes. I don't know if anyone got a chance to watch it. Um, There's a clip from an ABC newscast breaking the story that Hudson had passed away. And you can hear the discomfort in the anchorman Roger Grimsby's voice. Like he's trying to get through this segment as quick as he can. He can barely hide his disgust at having to even cover this story. Um,
3: Good evening, I'm Roger Grimsby, here now the news. Actor Rock Hudson dead, his year long battle with AIDS at an end, he was 59. Hudson died quietly in his sleep this morning at his home in Beverly Hills. He was found dead by members of his household staff. It was just this past July that the word came out that he had something drastically wrong with him. He appeared gaunt and drawn when he made an appearance with Doris Day to promote a television program. It was soon after that that the truth did emerge. Rock Hudson was suffering from AIDS. He went to Paris for treatment, was too ill to accept it. Rock Hudson's movie career spanned more than 30 years. It brought him from obscurity into the bright spotlight of Hollywood, a spotlight he did not want on his private life. Joel Siegel here now with a look at that career.
0: And I know, like Doris Day, who had been a longtime friend of Hudson, had gone on and basically made sure that Hudson didn't die in vain and really advocated for queer rights, for AIDS research. Um, And it was one of the turning points in how the disease was seen. But it's really not until Magic Johnson is diagnosed uh, and publicly announces that he has tested positive for HIV, that public perception begins to shift a little bit. Um, Magic Johnson was so well known as like a ladies man and virile and this like, I mean, along with Larry Bird, one of the two biggest sports superstars in basketball of the 1980s. Um, The punk band Fugazi, who is not known for like being into sports. They release a song that obliquely references because all of their lyrics are fucking Le Bleak. Um, they reference Johnson. It's on the album and on the Killtaker. It's called 23 Beats Off, 23 being a reference to Michael Jordan's uniform number and Beats Off being, you can kind of figure it out. Um, Friday's Revenge comes out in the middle of all of this. And it's just, to me, it's like fascinating to see, like in the middle of this pandemic that is being ignored by an administration, uh, but it's at the very forefront. I remember like reading, going to my mother's beauty shop she owned and reading like national inquirers about Rock Hudson and the, and how like terror, like the, it was like yellow journalism at its worst and muckraking journalism at its worst, like really like fear mongering shit. Like I remember reading those inquirers and star magazines that the old ladies with blue hair pieces would.
2: No, i, I was heard... sorry. Okay. No, I just my, my my grandma was like such a rock Hudson, like she had such a big crush on him, and like I remember when you know he was announced that you know he had had AIDS, not like you know not the previously reported uh, liver cancer, and my my grandma was like you know she she she's like so you mean to tell me he's and then she used the other f word, and even as a kid I was like yeah. yeah, and and so like so I remember like people like even you know my neighborhood were just like what like people were just shocked like and like stunned and I'm like and I was just like who cares like what like mm-hmm. you know but but no it was it was really because nobody nobody famous had you know it was like oh you know and even then yeah Doris Day helped to do that but it wasn't really bright though it wasn't until Magic Johnson someone who was like a famous heterosexual athlete that would people are like oh so you mm-hmm. mean you know because i remember as kids some kids would say oh don't sit on a toy seat because you'll get aids you know just mm-hmm. the, those stupid ignorant childish things some i don't believe that too at the time but it's like you know and yeah you're absolutely right like just to see watching freddy's revenge like it's it's the best and worst of 1985 and that mm-hmm. film like
1: and so i I was raised during that time i mean again like so sheltered and that that was that was the mentality that all of my family had i mean they used homophobic slurs like they were just insults you know like like that's what i was raised on and it was disgusting to me even as a kid Mm -hmm. you know and i was taught during this whole that reagan era i was taught that you know gay meant bad like it was evil Mm -hmm. You know, and we're so gay, what like people would say, like, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, and yeah, as a kid, there were two films that made me kind of like see outside of what I was being raised by, you know. And Freddy's Revenge was one. I mean, we could look back years later and be like, How did I not notice that? I'm sorry, but as a kid, I noticed it, you know, Freddy's Revenge, and there was a film that my mother's neighbor was babysitting my brother and I, and maybe we were too, a little too young at like eight or nine to watch this, but there was a film called Longtime companion. Oh, that is yeah. such a great film, such a great film. I would recommend it. Those two films really shined a, a, a light to me as a kid to see outside of this really awful upbringing that I was, I was seeing because previous to those films, you know, I thought that that was bad. I thought that that was, like, a thing only sinners, you know, like, I thought that that lifestyle or that, like, orientation was wrong. And it took Freddie's Revenge long Longtime Companion to really show me that people were people, you know? And, like, now I look back at that time of my life, childhood, and I kind of, like, I don't even talk to my family. because I despise them for that mm-hmm. because, like, that time, the 80s, like, it was evil. And, like, Reagan was an evil fucking person. Yeah.
3: I think what is challenging for a, uh, what can be challenging for kind of a modern audience to understand about the 1980s uh, and what it was like to be, uh, especially to be a gay man at the time is that uh, everybody's friends died. So because it was socially unacceptable to be queer and in most places, a lot of people went to cities. And if you were in a city and I mean, even outside of a city, obviously this was widespread, but you know, uh, gay men spent their weekends for years I'm not exaggerating in like a it was a two or three kind of thing like I got to I interviewed Mark Patton I interviewed uh, a ton of men who were alive through the 1980s and contribute to horror and they talked about being survivors because it got to the point where you had to choose where you put your energy because you were always grieving I I can't even imagine my the people closest to me my chosen family my best friends not having to attend funeral after funeral So when we think about the context of the 1980s and the way that affected horror films, it kind of changes a a little bit because you start to see the way it leaked in. So there's a big conversation about um, David Chaskin and whether or not it was intentional and this was an allegory for what was happening in the mid 1980s. I truly don't believe that he wrote this as a commentary. What I do believe is that when we socially our fears are reflected in our films. And so when we look at the 1970s and we're thinking Halloween and urban sprawl and leaving your doors unlocked, we've got, boom, Michael Myers. When we look at post 9-11, obviously like we see torture porn and hostile. And when we look at the mid 1980s at the peak of the AIDS crisis, well, of course you're going to have a killer who resembles a wasting away body. You're going to have people who who lean into homophobic ideas. You're gonna have a, you know, that scene with the coach is gonna feel like maybe that'll play for humor because he goes to a gay bar. You know, and then you've got the changing of the vampire because all of a sudden it's cool and sexy and he's going to lure you in because gay people are going to take your kids and give them AIDS. So even films like The Hitcher, which has no intentional queer subtext probably, becomes very gay, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're in a time where America's biggest fear is gay men because they can kill you. Sex equals death. Mm -hmm. And we see that all across the slashers in the 1980s so yes I I see those things explicitly in Nightmare on Elm Street too but I just wanted to add that that extra social context which if America's boogeyman is AIDS you can't it doesn't matter if it's intentional or not you're gonna see it
0: right so absolutely I 100% agree with that like you would just put it like I have a lot of, cause I'm a little bit older, like a lot of gay and queer friends, like talk about that time and talk about how many people they had to bury. And I know for me, it hit home when Freddie Mercury died. I remember like listening to the radio and hearing that he had passed away. It was right after the, um, I want to say it was the innuendo album came out. I probably have that wrong. Um, but that album was really like him, like knowing the end is near and reflecting on, his life and his triumphs, and I remember like when it was announced like Freddie Mercury had passed away from complications from AIDS, just like sitting in my room and bawling because I loved Queen so fucking much and just like how much that death like hey, like when Prince passed away and David Bowie passed away in two thousand sixteen has it been that long or yeah, that I anymore? think
2: it's been that long yeah um,
0: t- two thousand and sixteen was like the worst year in record until. 2020 said hold my beer um and just like for me like Freddie Mercury passing away that year like how much that hit me even as like a straight person because I like felt like an outsider you know so often the weird punk rock kid that was picked on a lot and I thought that Queen's music spoke to that like hey look you can be a little bit weird and a little bit on the outside and still be pretty fucking awesome so
3: To add to, you know, for me as somebody who is, you know, was born when this movie came out, Mm -hmm. I, you know, we had video rentals. This is where we found ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have, this is why the documentary I'm making, the Shutter one is so important to who I am. I didn't have a generation, like this, AIDS wiped out an entire generation of gay men. Mm -hmm. So where you all have people to look to, you turn on the TV and you see examples of how to build families, how to be an adult, oh. how, to, how to emotionally, how to hit on a girl, how to, go, you know what I mean? Like your first date, imagine not having any of that, any of it, you know? So we get all of what we get through our media and an entire generation of artists is dead. So yeah. I'm not trying to like bring it downer here, but it's it, the reality oh, it's is true. there is but no- But it's
0: important to talk about. It.
3: Yeah, exactly. Why I gravitated towards horror is it taught me how to be a man. I mean, because my queer creators who did survive embedded their stories in these films. So they became instructional. This is how to survive. And I think that what's interesting when we look at Mark Patton, and this is to tie it back to his performance, Mark Patton was cast at a time when feminine men could be leading men. So he was, when you look at the early 1980s and David Bowie and kind of gender bendy stuff, you get a lot of dudes who are, you know, they're, yeah, a little bit feminine. They're embracing mm-hmm. whatever. And then affected horror. But suddenly there's a turn. The difference in 1985 is, or the difference when Reagan gets elected, and as you talked about, you described the, the moral change. There was a push towards explicit, Up oh, my internet, sorry. Uh, can That's you, guys all right. hear you
0: okay?
3: I can hear you now. There okay. was about a couple of seconds we lost. Yeah. Okay. Um, when reagan was elected there was a push towards explicit like uh hyper masculinity that Mm -hmm. changed everything that's when we get our action stars and we get Uh all like our super muscly dudes and the leading man changed but mark Patton was cast when the leading man was still something else so what we have that's interesting about nightmare on elm street 2 is a a leading man from a past time just just a beat difference and a world that is now rejecting femininity because of AIDS, right. because we don't want to have anything to do with it. Gay men are going into the closet, people are appearing more masculine, and there's that push to hide who you are. He was out there screaming and emoting and being, quote, feminine, giving this great performance. But it, it, I, I think my last part of this point, and thank you for bearing with me, but it's that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was the most successful horror movie in 1985. Uh-huh. We talk about it like it was a flop, but that's revisionist history. Right. It's that later we looked at it and we're like, that's a feminine final girl. This guy's scream sounds like a woman. This is gay. This is the gay one. When it happened, it was fucking huge. Right. It, it made
0: is... more money than the first one and yeah, part, it did. Of, yeah. Absolutely. part of it is like the first one is so good like elm street 4 makes more than elm street 3 partially on the back of elm street 3 being yeah, yeah. so revered but if people didn't like and it's interesting it came out november 1st like the way to get the halloween season um <laughs> it's still like massively successful to your to your point um i thought about this i try to put myself in the mindset of being because i saw this when i was 11 years old when it was on hbo um, but if i was like a 15 to like 20 year old boy that would be the target audience for this movie when it first came out and i thought about like how jesse's characters introduced to the audience queerness aside he never had a chance within the first 10 minutes of this movie yeah. You introduce him in this dream sequence where his hair is plastered down. His shirt is buttoned all the way up. He's like, and I'm doing it here on the camera. Like I'm hunching my shoulders in. He's making himself as small as possible. And then you get, like you said, the scream, you know, where like, and you see, you don't see him wake up. You see the family's reaction to it. And everyone's reaction is like, oh, this shit again. And it's this really like high pitched wailing scream. The next thing you see happen to him is he gets like doinked on the head with a softball when he's like playing in gym class. And then he gets pantsed. If I'm 16, 17, 18, 19 years old in 1985, and I watch Jesse during the first 10 minutes of this movie, I'm writing him off. Like I'm not not empathizing with him. Like it has zero to do with Mark Patton's performance. It has zero to do with the sexuality of the film. It's just like who is this dork, right? That's really what it is.
1: For me, like I was that kid growing up, like. But would you have
0: called yourself that at like seventeen? No, honestly, no. Honestly,
1: I I would have, and I'm not arguing with you. I, I I totally, you know, understand. Oh, I'll argue, but I'll argue. (laughs) But for me, I was always searching Mm -hmm. for characters that made me feel like, like I was okay.
0: Mm -hmm. You know,
1: like, I want, I didn't want this, I I didn't want the characters that made me pretend that I was, I was something other Mm -hmm. than very awkward and shy and, you know, the the kid that would rather read a book than go hang out with friends, you know, like, Jesse, from the beginning, uh, I mean, from the first time I watched it, I was just like, wow, you know, like, that character reminds me of me in so many ways, you know, like, I didn't have friends. And I you know, know just, like, my family thought I, I was weird, you know? Like, Jesse was always yeah. that character. And I can, see
2: I, that. I, I agree with you. I, I, I can relate to that sort of being picked on and bullied, that aspect. I, I totally, like, identify with that. Although, for me, though, like, I was like, okay, you know, the baseball, the softball thing, I was like, okay, in gym class, I, I loved football. So they didn't know I could play football. So I showed them in physique class. But uh-huh. otherwise, though, I was like, yeah, like, I was a, you know, I was the kid, the sort of kid that, yeah, I kind of wore my shirts buttoned up. Cause that's what my mom bought for me Mm -hmm. and I could totally identify with that. So I could like, I I still like when I, when I watched it again and I see how he's getting, you know, like pants and he's getting like just mocked, you know? And then of course the the shitty gym teacher, like, like I just like, I'm just like, Oh my God, I totally get it. and Identify that part. Like it sucks. And yeah.
0: Sorry. And I see that. And I was the kid in high school who like, I got, I joined the wrestling team because I got tired of getting beat up and picked on. Yeah, And, that's and like I'm like, I'm not going to let yeah. anyone do this to me yeah. again. And I remember it got to the point where like one of the kids who tried to pick on me, I put him in like a takedown and I'm like, Nope, nice. this is not going to happen. And Excellent. I'm someone that like, I don't talk about this a lot. Like mm-hmm. my, my grandparents escaped the Armenian gem- genocide uh, from the Turks in the 19. 19- tweens and they raised mm-hmm. four boys and a two bedroom apartment in Lawrence. And I think it was a tough, a lot of love in the family, but there was a tough upbringing. And I think that translated to how I was raised as a, what was expected of me as a guy. And mm-hmm. there were times where I definitely caught my share of beatings. Um, that stopped when I got on varsity wrestling and I made it known it was not going to happen again um no one ever laid a hand on me again in the house after that that's um, awesome so you know and i say that like knowing that like that i don't even blame him i know that like mm-hmm. that's how he was raised and really like like my, my my relatives have all joked like across like the whole family like jesus the way we raised our kids in like 1980 we'd all be in prison in 2000 <laughs> you know um, yeah um So different time, but, you know, I just, I I hear what you're saying, Jerry. I don't know if there were enough of us to make this the number one horror movie of 1985 that would be overly sympathetic. Does that make sense? Like, do you kind of no? totally? No, I I, I I mean, yeah, for sure. I
3: would really like to speak to mm -hmm. one thing before we move on from it, but only because you had mentioned, like, separating the sexuality and all of that from Mm -hmm. it. Jesse didn't have a chance to succeed because he was... Uh, because of the way he was presented. That's actually exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. If Jesse had been a woman, right? She would be a, a prototypical final girl. Jesse mm-hmm. as a girl would have been Carrie, would have been even Laurie Strode, you, was yes. nerdy, mm-hmm. carrying books, right? She's, she's the virgin, they're making fun of her. So, what happened is Jesse's presented the way that we've always presented final mm-hmm. girls, but as a final boy. But socially, we don't accept men mm-hmm. to show yeah. weakness to emote, mm-hmm. and, to, and, and we consider that feminized. So, what I'm saying is whether he's gay or not, he's seen as, quote, gay because sure. we can't separize, mis- yeah. separate misogyny from homophobia because yeah, homophobia yeah. is really just a hatred of women. Women, right and mm-hmm. feminine characters and aspects in men so all i'm saying is socially we couldn't access jesse even if okay say there was it wasn't even intentionally gay what happened is he is a see, woman essentially right. or he's not a strong when we do have final boys they have to be like the guy in hostel.
0: Mm-hmm. and to yeah, your no, point more, like yeah. see, and i with a lot of final girls, they're given masculine traits. So that like men will like, you know, like Laurie Strode is given a lot of masculine traits. Nancy Thompson, like part of the reason we love her so much is she goes full-blown fucking Rocky on Freddy Krueger. Like she takes the Mm -hmm. fight too. And like Freddy gives her the come get me and she jumps into the fight. Um, So our final girls are often given like what we consider traditionally masculine traits. Uh, And look, I'm okay if no one... I'm not going to reference like men, women, and chainsaws again, because like everyone has done it and I don't read it enough to like accurately quote it. But there's a reason why that book is so revered is because like Carol Glover hits on the point, like we like our final girls because they act like men. Um, So I agree with you and maybe I'm phrasing my thoughts on Jesse trying to remove, I'm maybe trying to remove subtext that really can't be removed or disassociated from the character. That's just me trying to do that because I have the privilege to do so. And maybe I got to recognize that I have the privilege to do that a little bit.
3: No, nah, you're doing great. I just think that um, we actually probably, uh, it, it's it's maybe closer mm-hmm. related, you know, yeah. than so, you might realize.
0: Mm-hmm. And Shoulder had said, to your point about the screaming, He's he when Mark Patton years later talked about how this, this movie wrecked him. I mean, like, well, I guess we'll get more into that shoulder and, you know, he put part of the blame on shoulder and Chans- Chansky. I'm mispronouncing the writer's Chaskin. Name. Chaskin and shoulder says to him, like, well, no one told you to scream like a girl. Like that wasn't in the script. Jesse screams like a girl, which is really like, it's gross on a ton of different levels. But part of it is like, dude, you're the fucking director. So he's putting his trust in you to deliver the performance that you think is going to best work for the movie. So you might not have told him scream, quote unquote, like a girl, but you obviously thought of it enough to say, this works, let's do it. And whether it's like, for some reason, you want to humiliate this character for some reason, I don't know. But like you cannot absolve yourself of that responsibility you have as a director when the performers are putting their trust in you saying, is this, does this work? Is this what you want? Is it going to resonate? So to me, like that is a really like, it's a grotesque statement on so many levels, but from just like a professional level, just like, dude, you're responsible for this. Yeah. I
1: feel like a lot of blame was put on Patton mm-hmm. from Shoulder, especially, you know, you know, and I, I think Shoulder and Chaskin both backpedals a lot nowadays, you know, like uh, you know, Chaskin's like, no, I meant to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is what I was going for with that. When I mean, in my opinion, fuck no, you weren't, mm-hmm. you know, and and Shoulder blames any any criticism of the film on Patton mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, there there's that line that you even put in the notes where he basically said well you know he was so bad during the makeout scenes i should have known he was gay mm-hmm. like who says that shit first of all and second of all like i i mean it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the ending you know my read of it was always that it was very homophobic too and I, and years later chaskins can say that he meant to, it to be like a, a look at you know the aids epidemic and stuff i i've, I've always felt like it was very exploitative though And I I feel like Shoulder and Chaskin both kind of had that exploitative uh, uh, approach to it.
3: I don't want to just keep jumping in because I'm like, I'm the gay dude. So I'm going to just like tell it it how it But (laughs) is. Let's put put it this way.
0: Like people hear me speak enough. We have guests on because we want perspectives. Like no one needs to hear me speak. If I left the show tomorrow, be fine. So
3: please. Well, here's the thing. I... In, the, in whatever the horror community is, you know, how we do and don't see it, um, it's important that we all speak. And I think that it's just as important for if I'm going to come and be a part of a conversation, I want to give a space to speak about it, too. And just because we're not all experts doesn't mean, you know, it, it's the things that we're thinking and this is how we move forward, you know, so that's... Okay. I just, uh, I'm a big believer in having these conversations and that's Mm -hmm. why it's so awesome that we're here doing this. When I see the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, what I see is heterosexuality, the trope of heterosexuality curing the character, right? Like it's literally a kiss from his uh, Meryl Streep impersonator as a girlfriend. Uh, who (laughs) saves him from the monster inside. And we see that all the way back at like, uh, like Edison's Frankenstein in I think what, 1917 or something. I mean, there's the the trope of that monster inside that is saved by heterosexuality or marriage or a wife. This happens again and again and again. And so it's also, it's hard not to read something queer about that. But when you look at it, if, if, if this guy, if he wrote it that way intentionally, then dude, that you got a lot to reckon. Like there, there should be, I mean, we need to discuss what that means then. <laughs> right. You know, I wouldn't necessarily go around telling everybody that. Instead, maybe I would say, yeah, it was a really scary time. And oh. I think a lot of those things leaked itself into my work, you know, I, and maybe he was dealing with his own fears. Who knows? It, it no, feels but-
0: like he's trying to, get credit for something now that it's more acceptable that he can backtrack and be like of course i'm a trendsetter look what you know he can
2: ride the yeah he can ride the coattails of like the new like sort of perspective on you know the new reputation of the film and go oh of course that's what i met all along When you probably didn't and that's me. when i was a kid i saw the ending and i just you know when i was a kid i didn't see that because i was only like i think 12 or 13 when i saw it and I was just like, well, that's a stupid ending. Like it just, it you know, just from us you know, th- you know, this climax, and it's just, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, teen, you know, a twelve year old, thirteen year old going, oh, there's no big, big spectacle like in the first movie. So I'm like, oh. but then watching as an adult, I'm like, okay, yeah, there's more layers to this, and it's, uh, I don't want. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like the Mike Pence fact. It's like a kiss will cure you, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
1: I think not recognizing it and not coming to terms with maybe the fact that they approached it in a uh, uh, problematic way is what bothers me. I mean, uh, going back to that Scream Queen documentary, I mean, what does Shoulder Tell Patton basically? He basically tells him to get over it. And it's just like, I'm sorry, but he doesn't need to get over it. You know what I mean? Like there there has to be some explanation. There has to be some, some form of reckoning for that because i mean the man's entire career was kind of ruined by 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 this stuff you know and like you know i i don't know like i i feel like there's more to be said from those guys
0: to be honest i can't imagine again it, it's in i have a lot of empathy and i'm able to like put myself in a lot of person's shoes i can't and, and Patton talks about this in a documentary like long after leaving Hollywood, logging on to social media and reading the like you and Jerry, you're famous for saying never read the comments, Um, reading these things about this movie and like the out and out, like gay bashing and um, homophobia surrounding the movie from people and just seeing that about yourself time and time again. And like how that just has to like just devastate you And knowing at the time, like, he'd lost his partner to this crisis that his agency basically said, well, you know, after seeing this, you can't play straight. Um, And then having the, like, Sam, you had mentioned how this movie was considered, quote, unquote, underperforming or a flop, like having that all sit on your shoulders at that point. um, I can't even
3: fathom how difficult and the strength it takes to really come back from that. I think that if folks out there haven't seen scream queen it's worth a watch this oh, documentary yeah. will contextualize what happened with this film in a way that allows us to kind of dive into somebody else's perspective mm-hmm. and what is watching horror if it's not to you know live in somebody else for a second like we do with all of our final girls yeah you know, oh, I, um,
2: I, you know what i'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt like i, I yeah. did i had i missed out it was playing here in calgary uh, last fall at our Calgary, Calgary Underground Film Festival, and I just couldn't make it. And I was like really disappointed. But I'm telling you right now, once we're done this podcast, yeah. I'm going on Shutter and I'm, yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, Shutter cat, has it. So I'm going to go right on there after this podcast. It's now I'm like, oh, I really, really want to see it.
0: I mean, it's really an incredible story of like survival and over and really overcoming and like really triumph it's it's fantastic I think like what resonates with me and I would love to have Mr. Patton on not to talk about the making of this movie because I think it has been done so well in so many places but I'd love to have him come on and talk about like the re-embracing of this movie and him mm-hmm. kind of emerging um, and also his activist work like he's very he's you know when he talks about this movie he says I'll give you 57 minutes in the movie but you need to let me talk about my work with AIDS activism like mm-hmm. Mr. Pad you can come on for like three hours and talk about that like the space <laughs> here. Um, I had a different reading at the end of this movie and you can fully tell me I'm wrong um, because I think that I tend to look at like the bright and sunny side, and I'm on the record of saying like the last minute of horror movies just don't exist to me. They're marketing tools. They're teaser trailers for the yeah. next movie. Yeah. I'm looking sure. at you, Sinister Two, um, and I love you, Sinister Two. But that last minute's got to go. Um, <laughs> I haven't it, seen
2: it. Oh.
0: <laughs> it's to me like the end of this movie is the monster. Me- it, it's Jesse coming to terms with himself and his sexuality and the monster literally melts away. This monster that has driven him through this whole movie, it washes off of him. He literally cracks the last vestiges of it off of his face and throws him to the side. When Lisa embraces Jesse, it's not this passionate lover's embrace. He very slowly rests his head on her shoulder and she cradles him. It's almost this parental cradling and this acceptance of him saying, look, we're not going to be this romantic couple, but I still love you. Like I love you as a friend that accepts you as who you are. Um, It's not to me, not this romantic love that saves Jesse, but this other person who he does care for in a deeper level and who cares for him saying, I can still love you, even if we're not this heteronormative fantasy couple. And then you have the, bus scene and it's just like do 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 like yeah. i'm straight all trees. so yeah um and i love down. that character because she's just there it's to all fun, okay now yeah you know um but you know maybe i'm wrong like i and maybe that's like if i'm reading into it it could all just be from the performances that this that i'm seeing from pat and, and myers like injecting their own Feeling of how that should be played versus maybe what Shoulder and Chaskin wanted.
3: Actually, Mike, I think you are spot on and that um, that is what makes this movie hold up as the queer horror entry point, like the gateway movie for people because there, are, you know, queer folks as the monster, us identifying with them has existed, you know, forever. It's like, you go know, back to Dracula's daughter and see a lesbian who wants conversion. Yeah die at the end. But what's interesting about um, Jesse is he doesn't have to die and you do see the way that he holds her so platonic or that, that embrace is so platonic. And I think it's easy to look at it and say and, and to look at it and see the relationship between him and Grady and the real estate that takes mm-hmm. on screen. Also Grady, oh my God. Yes. I love Grady. So it's like you know all of all of what we're watching If you look at it overall, it amounts to something that is speaking beyond what the script wants it to be. And that's how I think for it, why it's so important, because both straight people and queer people see something more than what is just on the page. Yeah. So let's
0: talk about what is on the page and on the screen because we kind of got giddy a little bit. So let's talk about probe. Let's talk about no chicks (laughs) allowed. Let's talk about Robert fucking Shea, like leather Robert. All right. Oh yeah. Right. Bob Shea could get it in that outfit, man. God love you. I don't, you know, I don't see many like studio executives like taking their like young daughters to like a leather shop, go and help daddy pick out an outfit for this movie. God love you. Um, so let's talk about the stuff that was added to this movie that like, to your point, Sam, I think the production designers saw this and are like, oh, we know what's going on. Let's have some fun here. You first, my friend. I've, I've spoken enough. Well,
3: what, I, I, what always stands out to me is that like, whenever I watch it, it's like the Jesse going, in, going to the, the gay bar Mm-hmm. That, it feels like a dream sequence because it's, it's lit with all greens and reds and we're like, oh, I guess he's like having a weird dream where he's going to an S&M bar and he's being served by, you know. Uh, the producer of this movie. And, (laughs) but it turns out it's not a dream. Like he's even doing laps in the gym and the gym Mm -hmm. teacher's there and he's like, hit the showers. And the whole time I'm like, okay, this is seriously just a weird dream. And then the reveal is that it's like not a dream. And that like his coach was totally picking up a teenager in his, from his, it's like, whoa, this is so bonkers. Even like aside from the fact that it's gay, but like, holy shit. That yeah. is a
0: gym teacher that's way too invested in their students. No.
3: That teacher, like, I'm a former
2: teacher. That teacher breaks every ethical. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Like, yeah. Yeah, there's
0: I am just, when
2: there's characters you want to like, see die, he's one
0: of them. <laughs> I am just so amazed that like Springwood, Ohio, this small suburban town, not only has a gay scene, but they have a gay scene that is so thriving. They have a yeah. packed gay bar on a school night. Yeah,
3: like, yeah. That, that is, is like, the place to be.
0: I well, definitely Grady grew up like in the, the wrong S- suburb.
2: The, sorry, doesn't he, Grady say like S&M joints? Like he pluralizes? Yes, yeah. Right. Like, yep. So there's not just the one. It's <laughs> like the, fact the that district. He's walking with pajamas and probably no shirt. Or yep. He's got no shirt, no shoes. But and, like he can still go in there and be served a beer.
0: And I will say, like, the, fir- in my, the first time I ever went to a drag show was probably in my, like, mid-20s. And I remember, like, walking in and, like, being really comfortable. But then there was, like, a dude at the bar who I'm like, that dude is eye-fucking me. Uh, and it was, like, the first time, like, that had ever happened to me. And I'm like, oh, my God. Because this would have been, like, eh, like, late 90s or so. And I'm like, this is how, like... I must look like this at the mall if I'm ever like, oh my God, that girl working at Orange Julius is gorgeous. I'm like, this must be what it must be like for them. And I got to change my ways at this point. I'm like, because that dude is straight up like he sees me naked right now. And it was like, so it was just to me, I have no idea where I was going with that point. It's well, like, that's
3: the male gaze, right? Yeah, like we, yeah. when we will talk about what the male gaze is Thank and the way that horror me. films are are seen <laughs> through it, it's like, The experience that you have in a queer space Mm -hmm. being seen i mean most men aren't used to being Mm -hmm. seen in that way it's not that women aren't supposed to react in the ways that men are allowed to react to women you know
0: i i have like the probably the first time i'd ever been around like openly gay people was when i went to college at providence college because providence rhode island had such an amazing like and vibrant gay scene and they still do and I remember like going to punk shows and spoken word uh outings and art spaces and everybody and it was the first time it had ever happened but like they were so accepting of everybody like it was just it was amazing and I remember like not having a girlfriend at the time and going through a rough spell and going to get a bite to eat at a little cafe and the person who served me he came back over he sat across and he was like Uh, Hey, I think you're like really attractive. Like you ever want to go out, get a drink or a beer, you know, like, I'd love to go out with you. And I'm like, dude, I got to tell you, like, if I I, it's the most flattering offer I've had in months Uh, and thank you so much. But I just, it's, it's not for me, but thank you. And like being so flattered, I'm like, Oh man, like, why can't everybody be that nice? And it gave me that boost at that point. And I don't know, again, don't know really where I'm going with this, except to say that like, I used to be attractive and what happened to like, oh God damn it. It's a pandemic, man. It's a really pandemic. like, so many regrets about my dietary choices right now the, from my mid thirties on, so. Oh.
1: See, I had to use a restroom and I just came back to hear that story, that. Mike, so.
0: <laughs> there you go. We're going to get Jerry a little pee cup for these shows. We go too long, I know, so. um. But, you know, so there's, the gay bar is the obvious that they, but even there, like, it's it's being associated with deviancy, like an S&M and BDSM is, you know, in what it's done in a consensual way is a wonderful and fun activity. Oh, it sure like is. In 1985, <laughs> it's like, you're seen as a, a deviant for doing this. And like, no one is supposed to empathize with the gym teacher. Like, he's the Shelley and Franklin of the Elm Street series. He's the character you can't wait to see die from the moment he's introduced. Um, and then can we talk the dance sequence? Or can I just listen to people talk about the dance sequence? Because- all night long oh it's so it's, wonderful
2: i love his glasses and that he's
0: yes what? everything so about Goofy. That.
2: yeah
0: oh man but it's i like, just
2: i love the smile too like mm-hmm. uh when when his mom played by hope and, and that's I, I can go if we talk about the other actors later but like when his mom played by hope lame has that has that kind of smile mm-hmm. you know that sort of mom smile and they you know she's not catching him masturbating but she's catching him like kind of like being vulnerable or doing his own being just being himself Alone, you know acting out alone and then I just love that they just that it's a small little thing but I just love when she's like oh here you go okay well I'll yeah. leave you alone." And it's just like it's not it's not there's no no negativity there from her she's just this smile like oh well wow, like we right. caught you there it's funny <laughs> and then I just love that.
1: (laughs) It's also the most playful scene in the entire film. And it just, it it brings a huge smile to my Mm -hmm. face every time I see that movie, not in a, not in a point and laugh way whatsoever. Just that like, it's such a good vibe moment that like I, and and the pop, the pop yes the pop it. at the yeah, it's end
0: It's like, like Whoa, there you go it's
1: probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire series to be honest like i i just i have such a fun time watching that scene because Patton just goes for
0: it he does and he those Patton. are my
1: favorite those are my favorite performances in any film and that's i think that's why i love nicholas cage's work so much that even if he's bored in a movie he doesn't allow himself to be bored in a movie right like Patton just gave 150%. And even if it doesn't work for a lot of people, it works for me because I mean, I love it how silly it is.
0: (laughs) You know, against uh both against me and chuck reagan from hot water music have lines in their songs two songs i love like dance like no one is watching and there's a reason why that expression exists it's because like when you're behind that closed door and no one's around like i've been caught like dancing and playing air guitar before and it's ended relationships (laughs) because it's so embarrassing um we've all been
2: there yeah it's like you had
0: said jay like it would have been better if mom had walked in and seen him masturbating like that's explainable (laughs) like when you're you're at when you because most of us aren't good dancers i am not a good dancer but there's something so freeing about it when no one's around and you just feel like so alive and then when someone catches you it feels dirty it feels like you're not supposed to see this this is private and uh, you know see he immediately puts like the pop rocket behind his back it 's the first thing <laughs> that he does he like that 's what he hides is like the little you know cross rocket behind his back so but yeah, that scene is just and Pat has talked about like going to like bars and seeing that scene played on repeat over and over again, and how like weird it was for him, but also <laughs> god damn. <laughs> that you have like
1: well, i mean there's there is that dancing thing mm-hmm. the, i mean there's there's obviously a lot of people who are great at it but then there's people like myself who are just like atrocious at dancing
0: mm-hmm.
1: like i've never danced in public once and like my wife and i i think a couple years ago we went to cloak and dagger i don't know if mm-hmm. you guys are familiar
3: with that
4: mm-hmm.
1: it's kind of like this underground club in la it's kind of a goth club you have to have a, a membership card to get in it's very exclusive. Uh great so, sweet. And and like Davy Havoc from AFI will be in the corner just dancing by himself. Uh-huh. Like it's it's you have to wear all black or they'll kick you out. It's 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 insane. But we went one night and it was like the first time I had ever been dancing in public. And it was it, I felt like I was Mark Patton in that in that movie. I just felt so out of place when I was like, I guess I'll go for it. And it's just like I think that is more terrifying if a parent walked in on seeing you dance like that and going for it then right. you know the traditional thing that would be embarrassing being walked
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah let's talk the parents for one minute because i think that one of the things here is one of the readings i have as this film is that like clue uliger's character the dad he knows that his son is gay and mom knows his son is gay before jesse knows that he's gay and i think that like there is not a single positive interaction between father and son in this movie. And it's a bit heartbreaking because I've seen that happen within my own family. And I've seen it happen. Like I've counseled transgender teens where mom has made it a point to dead name their child over and over again to the point where the child decided to go live with a relative who, was abusive and they didn't know that they were transitioning because like that would have been the safer, more affirming choice for them. Like there's this anger that Gulliger's character has throughout the movie, you know, that, that comes through cause he just like, cannot accept this about his son even if Jesse doesn't know what's going on yet. And it's really, and mom who seems like a more sympathetic character on the surface her idea is just like, well, he needs to go to a psychiatrist because something must be broken or wrong with him. So it's as damaging, just in a much different way.
1: There's contempt in Jesse's dad uh, in the way that Clue Goulder plays mm-hmm. him. You know, the mother, she's obviously concerned, but she has this like, hey, send him to a shrink. All, all will be well mentality. But like the dad... I mean, he's just—he's just fucking fed up with it. Like he's so annoyed that his son isn't "quote unquote" mm-hmm. normal. You know, like we—we we hear that "damn it, Jesse" thing over and over. Kind of like the journey that Jesse's going through like offends him. You know, and uh, uh, you know, growing up, my dad was like that too. I didn't like sports, so there was something wrong with me. You know, like I would rather go see Jewel in concert than go to a baseball game with him. So obviously, something was wrong with me.
0: You were the kid you know? at Halloween eighteen. No, pretty much.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh. Oh no! I mean, uh, I, I was lumpy. Sorry, I just uh, yeah. The dad, like I, he's such a uh, such a Reagan era, like that sort of no nonsense, mm-hmm. just very strict, very like you know, and I you know horror films in even then, like they always wanted to hire like some known. Character named character actors so they hire Clue Gallagher like oh my god, get a clue podcast is gonna hate me but I can't pronounce the name. Yeah but like Clue Gallagher and Hope Lang, like they're very well known and you know, you know, they're not necessarily A stars, but they're still well-known. And then, you know, Clue Gillilger is known for, play, you know, being in Westerns and being, you know, those straight-edged, hard as, hard as fuck cops. Mm-hmm. And then here he is playing kind of not very dissimilar character as his dad. And, like, you know, he's like, how many times is he like, yo, go clean your room like, or unpack? And he's just like, nope, you're not going anywhere until you clean. Mm-hmm. Like, he's such an asshole. And, yeah, like, just the fact that, yeah, you know, like when, when, there's that one point where he asks, okay, so, I'm like, when the, when the cops bring him home, in the rain and all that and it's just like well you better put a tight leash on him like in 1985 it's definitely calling mm-hmm. there and then it's like what kind of drugs are you on come on you can tell me like like I yeah he's totally like he knows that he's, his son is gay and he's just he can't he's so ashamed Accepted. he's so like yeah he's just like I, if I can't beat it out of you like, you know I'll try to beat it out of you but or just like it's just really it's it's so horrendous to watch because and then of course you know like in, in most, a lot of horror films, he's the guy that like you know he normally bought the house. He normally buys the house from like the you know with the, where the first mm-hmm. one occurred because it was a good deal. Of like you know he doesn't tell anybody. And like first of all, what do you expect in a <laughs> horror movie if you buy a house that where bad shit happens? It's like you know like nothing good's gonna happen from that so
0: I, you know just before right. we recorded this i recorded on sinister it's like back-to-back movies with the dads buying the murder house and not telling yeah. the,
2: the rest of the family it's great well it's just like you know is how, like, why is it's like all these male like, all these these alpha males in 80s horror films that you know no nope, we're gonna buy this house or mm-hmm. we're gonna live here i decided to buy this house and like you didn't tell, you didn't consult with you know, your wife. Right. It's, nope, it's we, just, nope, we're moving. And then of course all the shit happens and it's like, well, it's your fault. You know, if the just, bird dies, the fake bird dies, it's your fault.
0: We just had an experience where we want to get our back deck redone. And I was talking to the contractor who's called from a different culture than I am. So I'm a bit more of accepting of it. I kind of understand where it's coming from. But like, he was adamant that I'd be there when he do the quote and not my wife. I'm like, look, my wife will be here. Like, I'm like, I'm telling you right now, like everything we've done to the house, she has been the person driving the bus. Like if she thinks we should do it, we'll do it. Like she can totally make this decision. She won't. She's going to research it. Like, I trust her. He just refused to come. And it was weird, but I know, like, it was just a cultural difference. So I'm like, all right, well, that's fine. Whatever. But, like, yeah, like, this idea that, like, I'm the man and I'm going to, like, who doesn't sit down with their partner and say, like, you know, we're getting a really good deal on this house by the way there were some murders in it a few years ago. (laughs) You know, that's something you want to know. See, I want to pull that shit because my wife would beat the hell
1: out of me. Like, like, I'm sorry, but my wife gets more done than I do. Like, she probably knows more about decks than I do.
0: But Sam, but- I see you physically retreating from the microphone <laughs> right now, sweet.
3: I mean, our experiences may be different, but I think we've all had we've grown up in a society that polices mm-hmm. behavior in the way that his dad does, just as mm-hmm. dad does. You know, so yeah. I'm I, I hear you for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I have anything meaningful to contribute other okay. than, yep. I'm with you
0: so we're running a little bit long and the last thing I guess I want to mention before we sign off um, I want to do a Grady appreciation right now because Robert Russier is the low key MVP of this movie like I really like every time I watch this movie I love Grady more and more because he set up to be the bully Mm jockish version of Rod but he becomes this really empathetic and funny and a really good friend to Jesse. And I think it's like the one death in this movie that really read, like, no, don't kill this person. Everyone else, you're like, either root for, or it's like kids at the pool party, you know, again, and the first kills not till like an hour into the movie, but when Rod dies, it's so fucking heartbreaking and sad. There's Often, one moment,
1: mm-hmm. uh, there's one moment in the film that really just solidifies how much I love the Grady character. It's when Jesse is asleep after, you know, having this panic attack, needing to sleep in Grady's room, Jesse's asleep. And then Grady basically tells him sweet dreams while he's asleep, you know, and he is set up to be that kind of typical, you know, jock character. That's kind of the tough guy, the bully. And I love how quickly they discard that. You know, it's it's by the next scene in the classroom that Grady kind of becomes like, it, it shows that he's not just a one-dimensional character. And I think the way that Rustler plays him, I mean, he, Robert Rustler was kind of typecasted during that time too. I mean, from everything from like, you know, Weird Science to a lot of the other films he was in. I, I loved that the, that he was given the opportunity to show a different side of, of himself as an actor in this one as well, you know? And I think Grady is one of, the characters in this film that yeah it hurts when he dies and you don't get that very much in slasher films i mean there's maybe in uh the final chapter where uh uh where uh the guy dies in the in the the basement like i feel that that is that the he's killing me
2: guy (laughs) yeah i
1: feel that guy rob rob dyer i feel that dude's pain grady like he's just trying to help out a bud you know
0: and his dad's on the other fucking side of the door I is that the brutal. dad? Is that the dad from Ferris Bueller's Day It out? is. Yeah. Yes. It is. Yes. I was like, yes. "It's
2: Ferris's dad." Like
0: that is the
1: role that that uh, Bob Shea wanted to play, but Jack mm-hmm. Shoulder didn't think he had the range. <laughs> How much range did that guy have? Wow.
3: <laughs> it's. Also, Grady, I mean, just because I'll be the one to say it, because he's fucking smoking hot. Yes. <laughs> I, I love watching. Look, he's gorgeous. He's a great actor. And it's not, and I'm not just, you know, I don't just love him because the boys pants each other immediately. How weird is that? Mm-hmm. And then like bond in the locker room. Right. And then, I'm, but here's the thing though, we never get to see male friendship, like friendship between two yeah. men in the way that this is. There's always like some weird competition or like, I don't know uh, some some element to it that's like female related, but in this case, uh, I like there's the scene in the cafeteria where Grady gets pissed off and his mouth is full of food and he kind of storms off, and it's like he's entitled to feel the way that he feels, and it's super cool to see somebody Mm -hmm. being fucking real and to have drama between two men, but have it be resolved because he truly cares for this. Yeah. Yeah. He well, does, and I love the scene where like in For him the, through in the whatever is happening or... like he doesn't yeah. question he's like yes you can be here I mean he
0: oops Sam you're breaking up on us a little bit bud or...
3: oh sorry Could you... about that I'm sorry uh, can you repeat that just... you
0: just broke up on us
3: there I uh... Yeah, when did I? When did what was the last part you heard? It
0: was right after, um, like the the scene, like after he stormed off in the cafeteria, basically.
3: Yeah, Grady storms off in the cafeteria with his mouth full of food, and we just don't get to like his drama, the drama, like it's so extra, and and I feel like that's something that we don't usually get to see, um, Mm -hmm. between two men in a friendship, and just like this. The, it, it feels real. It's like, oh, I know that guy. But then ultimately he cares for him and he allows him right. to come back to his place and and doesn't really question the bigger things that are happening because he mm-hmm. knows he's going to help protect him. And he has like basically a black vinyl comforter and that's so mm-hmm. awesome. So anyways, right. all, all points <laughs> and, for Grady.
0: You know, and I think like the, the line he has when, When Jesse is like, there's something inside of me trying to get, you know, just trying to get inside of me. And he says, Yeah, and she's female and you want to sleep with me. He doesn't (laughs) kick him out and he doesn't say, Like, get out of here. That's you know, he's like, You can still Mm -hmm. stay. Like there's no gay panic in that moment. Yeah. It's like I
2: was
3: I mean, I choose to read that as man, it's a sleepover and I'm kinda down it's all right. I you know, no. happens. So <laughs> you know, we'll give it a shot
0: we'll give it a shot
3: um it's like yeah, that it's scene so... yeah
0: i remember that episode of the simpsons where like bart and millhouse like make themselves up and they're jumping up and down to the bed yelling sisters do it together like you could have seen that play itself out um but do we think that grady actually pushed his grandmother down the stairs i think he's being a wise ass there i can't see him like that not being the reason he's grounded <laughs>
2: No, I I could see him. He would be doting over his grandma. He might be like embarrassed about doing it in front of friends, but he would be totally doting on his grandma. He didn't. Mm. He didn't push her down any stairs. Agreed.
0: So, all right, am I missing anything here? Is there anything that anyone wanted to talk about? To be honest, yeah. Um, I have
2: one little thing I need to bring up. It, it's it's the one little thing that it's it's not just this movie, but it always these contrivances like when uh, when Jesse like after like the his infamous dance scene and and they're in they're in his bedroom and the how they discover the the diary like that just mm-hmm. I don't know that just oh look someone left yeah. the, like Nancy left her diary and I'm like that's so private no one needs, I mean I get why they're using doing it it's a contrivance to yeah. like move the plot along but it's I, I every like when I watched again I was I just I actually shouted at the TV I said that's bullshit don't read <laughs> your diary I, I mean maybe it's just me but I just like that,
0: I don't mind it just because like what I like about is it like ties it into the first movie yeah. but you can jump right into part two and have never seen part one yeah. and not feel like you're left out so I think it like does a nice little two minute digression to like let you hey if you're new let's catch you up without being like too overlong, and it doesn't do what friday the 13th does which is play like the last eight minutes of the previous movie oh yeah you know right. to just like all right we gotta pad that runtime like look 84 minutes you're my here i love you you know 84 minute runtime skip the end credits like you, you you're right here so 14.
3: i think mm-hmm. I, mean, I i, I
1: oh. no go ahead i, I, us, Sam.
3: I love it because it just seems so queer watching this queen and his (laughs) girlfriend, like, sit there and read somebody's diary. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm here (laughs) for that. But, like, also, I... Who moves into a house and or they moved out and didn't see the diary and then he moved in and Mm -hmm. didn't see the diary come on dude you just because he was too busy not
2: unpacking his room like his dad kept hanging you know haranguing him for Jay
3: you're so right that is the
2: (laughs)
0: one I will say this that is the one area that I sigh with the dad like dude unpack that two boxes a day when you're unpacking like come on like the dad in me does say like right, (laughs) you can unpack that room faster at that point <laughs> my daughter did she's 10 and we've been watching hoarders and out of nowhere she thoroughly cleaned her room without being asked and has like all these donations for us to give away after watching like three <laughs> episodes of hoarders with us so wow great um, motivation yeah i must it show it that was, to my so, kids now yeah and like my wife absolutely would leave me from Matt the hoarding expert on that show Like no words, like would absolutely be like you can get the fuck out because that Saxon is coming in to like you know clean these down here. Anyway, on that note, (laughs) I don't know. I got to really do some editing tomorrow.
1: I think for me in in closing, I think there's a line in this film that really sums up not only this movie but the entire series in general and Freddy Krueger, and it's Lisa reading uh, uh, Nancy's diary, and she talks about. Heather writes about art. Nancy writes about, you know, everything, the power that they gave Freddie. And there's a line where she says, our screams were all he needed. And I think that when you talk about Freddie's revenge and Freddie kind of preying on Jesse, trying to use him as kind of a conduit or, a, a, you know, a way to kill all these people or every other film in the series, I think that it essentially goes down to that, that it's the fear And it's the nightmares that all of us live through as people, you know, no matter, you know, no matter what nationality, gender orientation, or whatever, I think that's what makes this series and this film so special to all of us is we've all been afraid of things. We've all had nightmares and we've all felt preyed on by life or specifically people. And I think the idea of, of Freddie, I think that's why it's kind of interesting to people is that these films are, are films that we can kind of latch onto, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I love this movie. Yeah. I really do.
0: God damn, I love doing this show. Um, all right. On that note, let's allow our guests now to talk a little bit about where they can be found right now. So Jay, where can our listeners find your writing? What are you working on? What do you have you want to talk about? Okay.
2: Well, I primarily they can find me by writing articles for Grumpire and occasionally for the Daily Grindhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next article I have is it was only going to be one article, but apparently I'm doing three articles nice. on the Blade trilogy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was yeah. writing 2,200 200, 200 2, words and I'm like, um, I haven't even talked about part two yet. So oh my... Wonderful understanding editor lb was like, "Well, I'll just make it mm-hmm. three parts, so my like, sweet, so I guess I'll be that guy known as I'll be known as that blade guy, but
0: uh yeah, <laughs> yeah so
2: that's coming up
0: We're really hoping to get l b on the show, like I was messaged her back and forth like we mm-hmm. might do like a if we can do a, like a one off of like Alex winter's freaked, I think we can get her well, on. That'd so be, yeah but, I would love to have yeah. her on the show, so she'd be
2: great for that yeah,
0: yeah. um and Sam, what is the status of the documentary right now? Like, when will we see this? And is there anything you can talk about
3: with it or? Are we... Absolutely not. Yeah. No. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. So... Yeah, just know we're, uh, we're still working on it. In the meantime, if you want to get your queer horror fix and learn a lot about what's going on with the doc, we did this really awesome panel for Comic-Con with uh, Brian Fuller, Don Mancini, created a child's play, and uh, Lachlan Watson, Nate Beaver, uh, it's just a fucking and moderated by Jordan Cruciola from uh, mm-hmm. formerly from Vulture and just an incredible right. writer. Um, watch the panel. It's fucking awesome. Right. And it's a blast. And I, I personally just got to speak to Don about some, you know, Chucky was my first horror movie yeah. and this is what the Chucky did for me, even though it was a bomb to him, you know, and yep. it, it's, it's pretty cool and a good entry point. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, I'm working on the doc right now with Shutter, and uh, it'll be out in the future. Could you, oh,
0: you send us the link to that panel and we'll throw yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely.
3: I am I so stoked it. that they left it up because yeah. I love it. And uh, and yeah. it makes me really, it makes me so happy. It's just like, it's fun. And I think a lot of people don't get to see, you know, a lot of times like there's like the queer person is the one guest. And so when you see like a, a group of five of them, us talking, it's like, oh, that's what this is. There's like an energy <laughs> and a life to it, you know? There, there and, uh,
1: is, I, I, watch, I watched it already. And yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's great. You Oh, Jerry, job.
3: thanks. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Well, I can't wait to see <laughs> it. And uh, but with- you can find me at Sam Weinman on Instagram and Twitter.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Jerry, what do you have coming up, my friend? Uh, a lot of articles, a lot of that stuff. Uh, I'm actually putting
1: out a new EP on the 21st, but I'm awesome. extremely nervous about, uh, I, I put everything that I had recorded on a 25 track instrumental album and released it a couple weeks ago, uh, kind of to close the chapter on that. Cause, uh, A lot of the instrumental stuff I do, it's based on like different like things I've been going through as far as like mental health and that kind of stuff. So this, I put a a close on that chapter. This one, this one's about like kink and BDSM
0: stuff. Excellent. So it's it's called,
1: it's called Submission Tracks. It's a few films or a few tracks, a few songs. Uh, It's has some interesting cover art coming with it. Great. Uh, yeah, it's coming out on the 21st. So Jerry, uh, what excited. would you
3: say the track we should look for that we would play at the BDSM club in Nightmare oh Street 2? Like what's the coach's jam?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's there's one called uh, Bite Marks that I, yes. I think people will, will dig. Uh, work. Hopefully. Hopefully Bite Marks.
3: I'm into that. <laughs> oh, yes.
1: Uh yeah and really quickly uh it, it for the longest time the whole project, the musical project I do rainy days for ghosts, it was just me. Uh, I've recently, uh, my wife joined recently as like visual, uh, in charge of visual stuff, because we want to make it kind of an audio and a visual experience. So she's in charge of like a lot of photography and that kind of stuff. Uh, She uh, definitely shot the cover. Uh, (laughs) uh, So yeah, yeah,
0: I'm I'm excited about that. Excellent. So uh, we, uh, by the time this comes out, in a couple of days, my other podcast, uh, Psychoanalysis, will be up on the Consequence of Sound podcast network. Uh, Jen, Laura, and I cover 2020's The Invisible Man and Abusive and Toxic Relationships. Um, and I think starting with our third episode, Midsummer, and this will be our fourth episode, we're really hitting our stride. Like This was a really fun not really fun. I think it was a really in-depth episode and I'm really interested. Yes. Cause abusive relationships, super fun to talk about. Uh, so yeah, poorly phrased, but I think it's an interesting list and I think people enjoy it. So every other week we have a show coming out on the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us there. Um, Later this week, Jerry and I will be doing our Patreon exclusive episode on the color out of space. So please, you know, I know Jerry and I recorded before this, like a way too long commercial telling people why they should become a patron of our show. Um, And I think I spent six minutes berating people to give us money. So that will be fun. Um, But basically every month we'll have a bonus episode that will be as in-depth as what we're doing on the main show. So this month, it's a Colorado space. We'll have some blog posts going up there as well. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian and pod and pendulum. I am out of Twitter jail for telling a bunch of Trumpers
2: off. So that's, you that's awesome. I loved it when you, when you mentioned that. I was
0: like, yeah. yes. I mean, I guess you cannot tell people that like, I hope you get hit by a bus. So, <laughs> you know, it could be a small bus. Like it could be a match book (laughs)
4: Um, but
0: you know that's where so that's where you can find me right now um we'll be back next week with a nightmare in elm street part three three dream warriors we have i think terry nope terry's not on for that show i am drawing a blank but i know we have three awesome guests lined up for the dream warriors right now um and then we'll be back after that with Dream Master. So we are just getting rolling on our Elm Street coverage. We
1: also might, uh, don't quote me cause we haven't got confirmation. We're looking into it and, uh, the person helping us with it is helping but we also might have a certain, uh, Wizard Master joining us at some point, too.
0: So So. we're trying to get some performers and behind-the-scenes people to do some bonus episodes because I don't know what we're going to do when Elm Street is over. I might just say, like, fuck it, we're all done. Like, how do you go from this to, like, all right, now Leprechaun? Um, But, you you know, we'll keep this going far past the point people want us to. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. Jay, Sam, you guys are both welcome on again. Anytime, Sam. We'll be talking about um, Elm Street 4 and getting you on for one of those. Jay, I think you're on for one of the Urban Legend shows after that. Am I wrong? I'm, I'm wrong. There was a series we talked about offline that you wanted. Right, right, right. And now I don't remember what it is and I'm embarrassed, but that's all right. So, till next week. Thank you so much. All right.
4: You are
0: hey everybody it's mike from the pod and the pendulum again uh hope you enjoyed our massive breakdown on a nightmare on elm street part two Freddy's revenge um and i thought we would add a little bit more so who's joining me right now
4: I'm Ada. Oh jeez. <laughs> I can't
0: get away from you. So I'll <laughs> apologize in advance because you're probably going to hear some background noise right now because Ada, where are we?
4: We're at a drive-in movie theater and we just hit the break because Scream 1 just finished and the next movie that's going to play is the Blair Witch Project. Yeah,
0: and I would say you're the youngest kid here by a good like 10 years so <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a parenting win or if someone should chuck call child protective services. So, before we what did you think of Screen 1 before we talk about Elm Street 2? I
4: liked, I liked it and I also like how they had like the rules and how they didn't like really, and how the movie didn't yeah. really follow the like the like how most horror movies go. Yep.
0: Absolutely. I I agree. All right. So, you tell me now. We're here to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Freddy's Revenge, and I think you're gonna have a very (laughs) controversial opinion about this. Why? Okay, I love this. Now, this was the first one Dad saw way back when. I saw Elm Street 2 before Elm Street 1, but what do you not like about. Why does it. What is it about Elm Street 2 that you didn't like?
4: Alright, so in the first one, when I saw that, that was like. One of the favorite horror movies that I had, and I was real, and I saw the third, the third one as well, and I was yep. really excited for the second one. But um, so in the first one, you got he kills you in your sleep while you're yep. dreaming, and they had these amazing dream sequences that yep. were really scary, and the scenes where she tried to stay awake were really fun for me. Yeah. And then I just, but then the second movie was pretty much Freddy can do whatever the hell he wants.
0: Right. Well, what is Freddy trying to do in the second movie?
4: Kill everybody because oh, he yes. doesn't care. He
0: does that in every movie though. That's <laughs> but like who who is Freddy working through in the second movie?
4: Um, oh, this one guy, I guess he gets possessed, but it's yeah. not like Freddy's spirit is him. He's like he gets cocooned in yep. Freddy's skin or whatever. he I gets
0: just... cocooned in his skin. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. I don't know, he like turns
4: yep. into Freddy or something. He's like possessed. But then if by you him. like cut it, it, it's like he's inside of it, so it's weird.
0: Mm -hmm. But what did you think of the special effects in the movie? They
4: were okay, I guess.
0: They were okay, you (laughs) guess? Oh my god. I don't remember them. Unbelievable. You're okay. You're fired. So, (laughs) did you think the second one was scary? I think that the second movie has the scariest version of Freddy. That one is really scary because he's not making jokes and he's not playing around. He's just really um evil in that one.
4: I know he was, but for me it wasn't as scary because um it because it was just the same reason I don't like I didn't really like the Friday 13th movie uh-huh. is because it's an hour and a half of a dude running around and killing people with some knives.
0: Well, not really though, because like Freddy's not in it a lot until the very end, right? Like, the first person that gets killed is, like, the gym teacher, and I think that's almost an hour into the movie.
4: Yeah, I guess.
0: So, you know, and what a lot of people say the second Elm Street is about is it's, they call it the gayest horror movie ever because it's about a young boy who um, is, is gay, and he doesn't know, he can't come out, so he feels trapped. And what Freddy is is that feeling of being trapped.
4: Is how that, is he gay?
0: Well, what do you mean, how is he gay? I
4: was, Like, how is he gay? He has a girlfriend.
0: But does he seem to want to spend a lot of time with her? Nope. No. I think that he has a girlfriend because that's what people expect of him. Because he's supposed to feel like he has a girlfriend.
4: But what are the signs pointing to he is gay?
0: Oh, boy. Well, if Why you listen to our show... If you listen to our show ada you will have a good two-hour discussion of it but i would say that (laughs) i don't um, okay what do you mean you don't i have the best show but i would say that like you know there's a lot of signs throughout the movie that he doesn't ever feel very comfortable around lisa um that there's that remember that one scene we go to the bar and his gym teacher is there yeah and there's all like Men dancing with men and women dancing with women, you know. And he's at a gay bar in the I middle of I think he might town. like that bar. He what?
4: I think he might like that bar. I
0: think so. I think. Yeah.
4: Do you think he goes to that often? I'm Pretty sure well, he. Well, I
0: think he only went that one time because um, he's in high school when he's probably too true. young to go to bars, right? But it's so a gay bar. It is, yeah. And that's okay, right? I mean, yes. there's nothing wrong with that. It's you know, people go there, you know, and that's where they. And back. 30 years ago when that movie was out, or 25, geez, how long ago? Go, God, 35 years ago. Your dad is super old. Um, (laughs) That would be a place that men and women um, that felt like they wanted to be around other people that were like themselves, they didn't have a lot of places they felt safe. They felt like they were judged or laughed at or ridiculed, so that would be a, 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 a place they could go, and they would feel accepted, right? Yeah. hmm So, <coughs> excuse me. So, and the idea is, like, what Freddy is in that movie, and it's what we... Do you know what a metaphor is?
4: Yeah, I know what a metaphor All is. All right,
0: well, what's a metaphor? You tell me.
4: A metaphor is where you, um, use something in place of, so, like, like... You use something in place of, like, God... You use something in place of something, like, it's... Like, God, I can't explain it, like...
0: You would say... I know what it is! Yeah, okay. But you know, you, like... You use something as an example... Of
4: something
0: else. As a descriptive example of something else, correct. So, the metaphor of this movie would be that, like... Jesse, who's the boy in the movie... Mm -hmm. That him being gay and not being able to express it and not being able to be out and be open and be who he really is freddie becomes that gayness that he tries to keep inside of him and it keeps bubbling out He can't help but be who he is and because he's not able to be who he wants to be he that freddie is the monster at that point because he's not getting to be himself does that make sense
4: yeah, but explain that way. It's like gayness is the monster.
0: And you're right. You know what, honey? Because, you know, 30, no. 30, oh God, 35 years ago, again, I'm old, you would not really be able to make a movie that would play in a lot of places that would say it's okay to be gay.
4: So in that movie, it would be like gayness is the monster, yes. don't be gay?
0: That would be the message, because at the end of the movie, remember, he And having has a girlfriend. girlfriend helped him not yeah. to be gay. Do you think that's a good thing, that that, that message comes out? Do you think that's a good or... No.
4: I mean, if he wants to have a girlfriend, I ain't sobbing him, but like...
0: But if he didn't want one, if he wanted to have a boyfriend, is that okay? Yeah. Of course, right? So do you think it's a good message to say that you shouldn't be yourself? No. No, right. Is this all very confusing now? Yeah. Oh, boy. I know. You're like, Dad, I'm 10. I don't want to figure this out. Um, but do you ever, when you're at school, do you ever hear other boys or girls, like, use the word gay in a bad way? Like, they say, like, that person is so gay or that is so gay. Do they ever use it like that?
4: No, but one time this person at lunch, I'm pretty sure she... was
0: oh, oh, no names.
4: You can edit that out. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
4: Um... He was like, this person said the G word. I'm like, what's the G word? And she said, and she spelled it out. I'm like, that's not a curse word. That's when, like, a man likes another man or uh-huh. a woman likes another woman. Right. And she told me it was a curse word.
0: Right. And maybe for some people it is. They think that there's something wrong with it. But what do you think?
4: I think being gay is fine. Yeah, of
0: course. If, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were really little, you asked about the rainbow flag. Did you remember this? no and you asked why there's so many rainbow flags up in the city we were driving in and I explained that it meant that it was supportive of lesbians and gays and transgender and bisexual people and you asked well what is that and I described what it is and you said when I'm older I'm not going to marry a boy because they have stupid faces <laughs> so I'm going to marry a girl because you know because like they're much yeah. cooler so to me it's It's, you know, and like mom and dad want you to know that no matter who you love, it's okay. It doesn't matter if it's a man or if it's a woman or if it's someone that identifies um, not as either but somewhere on the spectrum. But as long as that person is good to you and treats you well and you care about each other, that's really all that matters is that you know love is love and as long as you care about someone and they care for you and they don't hurt you that's all that matters right can
4: I ask a question
0: you can't marry the dog
4: no how did talking about a, a sequel to a horror movie turn into a big speech about love and how it's okay to be gay
0: well because <laughs> dad and mom always want you to know that we love you and support you you got to remember honey you have a Psychologist for a mom and a therapist for a dad, so <laughs> we talk about feelings in this house, even when it feels weird. All right, so what movie? What movie are we watching next week?
4: I don't know. I assume the third one.
0: You assume the what? And give a quick spoiler. Like, what do you think of the third one?
4: Oh my god, that was my favorite movie for a long time.
0: So, what's your new favorite movie?
4: I have no idea.
0: So, something. of them all of them might you don't really like to pick favorites do you
4: no because all of them are good you can't your favorite
0: parent mom or dad
4: exactly go ahead i remember when i was little you asked that question and i said elmo
0: oh god well you're out of the family all right so we hope you have enjoyed this talk on a nightmare on elm street part two Freddy's revenge that concludes our episode for the week all right we will be back next week with uh a nightmare in Elm 3 part trip three Dream Warriors. Can you sing the Dream Warrior theme song? Wait, there's
4: a theme song. Yeah, you're the
0: Dream Warrior.
4: Warriors.
0: So you gotta get the high notes. Alright. Be back next week.